Hello everyone, I hope you're all having a great day. Can you believe it? We've already released 60 episodes of Creepscast. I guess it's true what they say. Time flies when you're getting spooky. Let's not waste any more time. Shall we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind? I've been hearing a weird sound in my apartment. I regret finding out what it was. Written by Sir Flatfooted. I first heard it one early morning at 4 a.m. I had woken up and I could not fall back asleep. After twisting and turning for what must have been half an hour, I decided to try the good old stop moving and pretend that your body is a brick strategy. That's when I noticed it. A faint, mechanical throbbing sound. At the time, I didn't make much of it, and in retrospect, I never should have. Eventually, I managed to fall back asleep. When I woke up the next morning, the sound was gone. Or was it still there? It was impossible to distinguish due to all the other sounds buzzing around. I couldn't tell really, but there was definitely a possibility. After all, I live in an apartment located in a street that is pretty busy during the day. So, such a faint sound would be next to impossible to hear at any other moment during the hours when the city is asleep. That night, I woke up again. I no longer am sure of what hour it is, but it had to have been pretty early. This was not an unusual occurrence for me, as waking up at the worst possible hours and being unable to fall back asleep had been my specialty ever since I was a kid. But this time, part of me believed that my brain had intentionally woken the rest of my body up in order for me to check out whether the noise was still there. It was. I got up from my bed, walking from room to room. I attempted to locate the source of the noise. Truth be told, this was a rather short venture as my apartment isn't that big in the first place. But still, I could not notice any significant difference in sound anywhere. The pulse was always there. Why am I even doing this? I asked myself. What does it matter where that sound even comes from? It's not that much of a nuisance anyway. I can barely hear the thing. Well, that much was true. I had tried recording the sound with my phone, but it was impossible to point out in the recordings. It was that faint. I went back to bed and I fell asleep without much trouble. You know that when you're dreaming and your alarm suddenly starts to ring, and the sound of your alarm becomes a part of the dream that you're having. Well, that had started happening with the throbbing except the sound wasn't loud enough to wake me, like an alarm would. Although, I'm not sure how grateful I should be for that. Because, in my dreams, the sound came from rats in the ceiling, about to gnaw through it before falling on me and eating me alive. It came from a gigantic monster, 
asleep somewhere below the foundations of my apartment, closer and closer to waking up. It came from a ghost, watching me every night, laughing as I tried to locate it, no doubt preparing a nefarious scheme. Of course, I knew all of this was crazy, but those nightmares were taking a toll on my mental health. Eventually, I looked for answers online. Electronic devices were the culprits that the most often came up. I had already gone around my apartment multiple times, unsuccessfully trying to pinpoint the noise to any particular device. So, I didn't think this could be it. But one night, after a particularly terrifying nightmare involving my own pulse missing from my chest, and me desperately attempting to find it before it had escaped forever. I woke up in a sweat. I walked up to the circuit breaker of my apartment, and I shut the power off. The noise was still there. A shiver ran down my spine, but I quickly reassured myself that it meant nothing. There were plenty of other perfectly reasonable explanations as to the source of the noise. There was nothing to worry about and absolutely no need to overreact. But rationality did not keep the nightmares from happening. I knew that if I could only find the source, my subconscious would stop freaking out about that nocturnal noise and stop the nightmares. So I looked for other possible answers. Another possibility that I read about online was the heating system. I knew that was somewhere in the basement of my building. I opened my apartment door and came face to face with one of my neighbors who was heading for her own. She was a 30-something woman who already lived there when I had first moved in. And besides that, I did not know much about her, except for the fact that she had cats and would occasionally walk along the gutter that connected her window and my own. Sometimes the cats would wander into my apartment, at what point they would occasionally refuse to leave. When that happened, I would carry them back to her door and knock. She would then apologize and would say that there's no need, as I love cats and their visits always brighten up my day. That was pretty much the extent of our relationship. That and the small talk that would happen when we would cross each other in the corridor. Like what was happening just now. Hey, I haven't seen your cats in a while. How are they? I'd asked. Oh, hi, they're doing great. I guess I just don't let my window open as much in the winter. So there isn't much opportunity for them to escape. She answered, a shy smile on her lips. To be fair, I already knew the answer. I rarely ever saw her cats in the wintertime. I only brought it up because I had run into her unexpectedly, and I needed to come up with them some small talk in a pinch. After a small silence, I decided to risk it. Hmm, have you noticed anything weird, like faint noises recently, especially at night when it's really quiet? A weird noise, um, no, I haven't noticed anything out of the ordinary recently. Sorry about that. 
I did not know whether to be relieved or worried. As I looked into her eyes before parting ways, I noticed how tired she looked. Dark circles, a weak voice. Could it be the noise that was keeping her up as well? I shook my head. No, she had just told me that she hadn't heard anything recently. There were plenty of factors that could lead to a person looking tired. Despite my best efforts, the doubt lingered. What if she was lying to me? I made my way to the basement without any other encounters. The door to the boiler room was locked. This didn't come as a surprise to me, but I had hoped that if the throbbing noise's origin really was this place, it would be stronger here. I put my ear against the door. I heard a soft buzzing noise and other low-pitched sounds, but nothing resembled the throbbing that I could hear upstairs. Disappointed, I turned around and made my way back upstairs, and that's when I noticed that the lock to the electrical room was broken. I timidly made my way inside, but couldn't hear anything resembling the pulse. I quickly left the room and went back to my apartment. Due to the nature of this forum, I assume most of you know about the hum. While I had run into that phenomenon while looking for explanations online, for those that don't know or aren't aware, the hum is a widespread phenomenon. A low frequency sound that can be heard in many places around the world. The rational explanation is that there isn't just one single hum, but multiple ones coming from different origins, and they're described in the same way by the locals. Oftentimes, these source would just be an old-fashioned building or something of the sort. And maybe this was the case here too. Maybe the sound did not come from my apartment building at all. That night, I walked out into the streets. My city isn't really that big, and I live in a pedestrian street, so traffic is non-existent here. The night, it was dead silent. The conditions to hear the hum were nearly perfect. But I heard nothing. This was just another dead end. I made my way back upstairs. As soon as I had settled down, I heard that all too familiar throbbing sound again. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I had a bit of a nervous breakdown. I could not take the non-stop nightmares anymore. I just knew the sound was nothing supernatural or nefarious, but my subconscious wouldn't just give me a break. I hadn't gotten proper rest in weeks. I wanted to call the police, an ambulance, the fire brigade, a freaking priest even, but I realized how ridiculous all of this was. The throbbing sound was like insanity knocking at my door. If I did not find its source, my mind would eventually answer its call and be consumed whole. I made my mind up. The only explanation left was that this sound came from an electronical source. I had already switched everything off in my apartment, 
but maybe it came from one of my neighbors. Surely none of them would mind if I just switched the power off in my entire building in the middle of the night, especially if it was only for a few minutes. Their fridges and freezers would stay cold enough until I turned it all back on. The computers that they left on standby would shut down, sure. But hey, it serves them right for not saving their work and shutting them down properly. As far as I'm concerned, this is an ecologically friendly move. I nervously laughed to myself. Of course, the truth was that I just wanted to be done with all of this. Thankfully for me, the lock to the electrical room was still broken. It was easy for me to make my way in, and so was turning everything off. I painstakingly walked up the stairs, all the way to my apartment, lighting my way with my cell phone. I entered my room and sat on my bed for a few minutes. My own heart was throbbing, partly from anticipation, and partly because of all the stairs that I had walked up but eventually it settled back down. Nothing. The night was silent like it should be, and like I had always thought it was before first hearing the pause. I grinned from ear to ear. The sound really did come from an electrical source. There was nothing to worry about. I made my way back downstairs, making sure to turn everything back on as the way it was. This time, I could use the elevator though. Just like the absolute silence of the night, this was another thing that I took for granted and now felt grateful for. That night, I slept peacefully for the first time in weeks. The noise was no longer a source of anguish. It was the weekend, so I could afford to turn my alarm off and just rest for as long as I needed. I woke up at 3pm starving. I left my apartment to get a quick bite. I was heading back to my apartment door when I saw my neighbor at the end of the corridor, her head down. As I got closer... I saw that she was painstakingly trying to find the right key on her keychain, but that was not what had bothered me. She was sobbing. I was about to walk up to her to ask her what was wrong so I could try to lift her spirits, but then I remembered. She's always been afraid of hospitals. She had told me that day her cat had wandered into my apartment once more and as I had brought it back and she had opened the door to let it back in, I saw an old woman lying down in a makeshift bed, tied to these shoddy-looking medical devices keeping her alive. I can't go against her wishes, but she's in too bad of a state to live on her own. I just had to bring her here. The sobby continued. My neighbor had just given up on finding the right key, and was just holding her head in her hands. Too ashamed to talk to her, I silently reached for my door and made my way inside. I had slept peacefully, indeed. The electronical noises coming from 
that old lady's medical devices had no longer been a source of concern for me. I had no longer heard them in my dreams, nor did I hear the sirens that had come to pick her up that morning. I'm trapped on a cruise ship near Antarctica, but I don't think I'm going to make it back. Written by Nana Mouse. I remember thinking that I had never felt so small. I stood on the deck of the largest ship that I had ever seen in my life, in the middle of an ocean that stretched out forever in every direction, with what seemed like the entire universe spread out above me. I couldn't stop snapping pictures, but not a single one seemed to capture the sheer magnitude of what I saw. My last picture had a strange sort of blur in it that I couldn't immediately place, at least until the wind had shifted and a small cloud of something was blown into my face. It smelled smoky. Seconds later, watching the direction that it came from, I saw more of it drifting downward toward the ocean. I leaned over the railing and craned my neck to see where it was coming from. A man stood on the deck above me, young-looking and wearing a crew uniform. He had a large cardboard box propped against the railing and was scooping out handfuls of sandy gray matter to toss overboard. I hate to admit how long it took me to put this together, but once I did, I freaked out and started swatting at my hair and coat. I had just taken a face full of human ash. When I looked up again, the man was staring down at me. I gave him what I hoped was an apologetic look and he grabbed the box and ran. The next morning over breakfast, I was confiding in my cabin neighbor, Anne. I told her about the guy spreading ashes and how much it had freaked me out. She told me that she thought it was a nice way to go out. I guess at her age, she thinks about that sort of thing more than I do. Before we could finish discussing it, an announcement came over the ship's speakers. An overly chipper voice was telling us that a storm was forecasted for tonight, and for safety reasons, we would all be asked to stay in our cabins from 10pm until breakfast. I immediately pulled up my phone and checked the satellite maps online, but nothing I saw suggested a rough seas or any kind of storm front. I spent the day relaxing, I mean it is a cruise after all. But the later that it got, the more I found myself watching the sky. Where was the storm supposed to be coming from? Even when time was creeping towards a new curfew, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, just millions of stars. It was breathtaking standing at the railing and seeing the Milky Way touch the horizon. My thoughts were interrupted by a crew member asking me to please move to my cabin for my own safety. It was after 10 now and the decks were occupied, only by the crew and the last a few stragglers who were ushering indoors. I apologized with a smile, which the crew member didn't return. I assumed he was one of the last friendly ones, but the longer that he stared at me, the weirder that it got. He didn't move or take his eyes off of me until I was completely out of sight. Even then, I think I saw him peek around the corner when my door was shutting. 
A few hours passed and curiosity had got the best of me. I snuck out of my room, not that there was anyone watching anyway, and went out onto the deck to see what this dangerous storm was all about. It was nothing. Not a raindrop, not a snowflake, not a single rough wave. The sea was calmer than it had been in days. Even the wind had died down completely. I wandered down the deck towards a row of lifeboats, absently staring at the gentle waves rolling in the distance. A faint voice caught my attention. I could barely make out two dark figures in the distance, one leaning on the rail and another standing and holding a large box. I snuck closer, ducking down behind the lifeboats, trying to hear what they were saying. That's so gross, a feminine voice giggled. Grosser than touching it, a male voice responded. He pulled a large plastic spoon out of the box, the kind that you would usually use for ice, and poured a scoop full of something over the railing. After last night's discovery, I assumed it was more ash. Do you put it back in the kitchen? What if I do? The conversation devolved from there to teasing with him randomly acting like he was going to throw a scoop of ashes at her and her squealing and giggling and swatting him on the arm. I was about to move on when she picked up a second box and started to tip it over the railing. He jumped forward and snatched it out of her hands. Is this what you've been doing? He half shouted. I'm not touching that. She whined back. You can't just dump it all in. He wasn't teasing anymore, and her face felt at the dark look that he was giving her. Why does it matter? It just does. I know you're new, but the rules are important. He gave her such a look of contempt that even I shrink back. I shouldn't even be here, he mumbled half to himself. I was supposed to be on 12. Well, then maybe you should go, she snapped back. He threw his plastic scoop back into the box and stormed off, thankful in the opposite direction from me. She watched him go and as soon as he was out of sight, she dumped her entire box of ash over the edge and left too. She was trying to look tough, for who I'm not sure, but when she had passed my hiding place, she was chewing her lip off and fidgeting with the chain around her neck. I waited a few minutes before coming out and going to the railing. I looked down into the ocean below. The clump of ash had already disappeared somewhere below the surface. As I searched, another faint cloud had drifted past somewhere below. I scanned the decks beneath me and finally spotted another hand reaching out, scattering ash to the sea. A cold chill crept on my spine. I looked back and forth along the decks. The more that I spotted, the easier they were to find both above and below, more than I could count. Every deck, every section, as far as I could see in every direction, every last one of them tossing human ash to the depths below. Anne came to check on me around noon. I had been holed up in my cabin since last night and she got worried when I didn't show up for breakfast. I had to have looked crazy, checking both ways down the hall before I even let her in. I told her everything. I mean, I had to tell someone. This was way too much for just one person. She patted my hand and said that it had to be some kind of program. You and I are lucky. There are a lot of people that never get to see this part of the world. 
Some people never get to travel or sail at all. I know that she meant well, but she wasn't there last night. I needed her to understand how big this was. I made up my mind before she had even left. I was going back out there. I was taking my camera and I was getting evidence. A little after midnight, I crept up the stairs to a higher deck. I didn't want to take the risk of running into anyone who worked near my cabin and they might recognize me. I knew curfew had become a standing order on the ship, although I saw no evidence of foul weather. The deck up there felt bigger, and it was high enough to give me a touch of vertigo when I looked over the railing. I kicked myself for not choosing more carefully. There were hardly any places to hide here. I was just thinking about moving to another deck when I heard a door open behind me. I crouched in the darkest shadow that I could find, armed with only my camera, praying that my breathing wasn't too loud. Another crew member with another cardboard box emerged and started making his way down the deck. He placed the box next to the railing and looked out at the ocean for a minute. I switched my camera on as quietly as possible. I had already turned off the screen so the light wouldn't give me away, and I had a long zoom lens equipped so I wouldn't have to get too close. From here, I could see pretty much every detail. I zoomed in on his face first and breathed a sigh of relief. He had earbuds in. As long as he was listening to something, he wouldn't hear my camera shutter. I snapped one shot of his face just to make sure. Zero reaction. This might be easier than I thought. I backed off the zoom a little bit to get a clear shot of his jacket with the ship's logo. And then I noticed that he was wearing a piece of jewelry. A silver chain around his neck that I felt like I had seen before. I zoomed in again to see a shining pendant dangling over his chest, with some kind of symbol carved into it. I got a few shots, but none of them came out very clear. The boy dipped out of frame and I had to zoom out. He had bent over and was reaching into the box at his feet. My finger touched the shutter, waiting for the scoop of ash to be visible. He pulled out a human arm. It was charred beyond reason but completely unmistakable. It had a hand, four fingers, and a thumb. And I think that it even had a ring on it. Bile crept up the back of my throat and he threw the arm overboard. Cold as it was on the deck, I began to sweat. I found enough focus to hold the shutter and to close my eyes. My camera clicked rapidly, catching shot after shot of something that I couldn't stand to watch. Eventually, my fear of being caught overcame my revulsion, and I managed to open my eyes up again. I watched the boy throw his last few chunks of a thankfully unrecognizable flash over the railing, and then he just stared down into the box. I held my breath, not sure if I could handle another twisted revelation. He pulled his sleeve over his hand in a barrier and reached in. What he pulled out... I see that scorched face every time I close my eyes. I was still dry heaving in the shadows when he walked away with his empty box, and I stumbled to the railing, hoping some fresh air would soothe me. Like an idiot, I ended up looking down at the ocean. I saw hundreds of them bobbing in the water, just pieces, everyone burned to a crisp. I followed the railing towards the back of the ship, too stunned to care about being seen. 
The sea below was littered with what was left of humans, with more still falling from the ship. I stood at the furthest point of the deck, watching them float away in the wake of the ship. Maybe it was paranoia sinking in, but I swear that I could see a few disappearing. Someone shouted from an upper deck and I ran. I didn't stop until I was barricaded in my cabin trying not to cry. I was pretty sure that I had stayed far enough ahead to lose them. Otherwise, they would have been breaking down my door. There was no way I was supposed to see any of that. I didn't turn on any lights that night and I sure as heck didn't sleep. I dragged my laptop into my closet and I loaded my pictures on it. I decided not to post them until I was safe and off the ship. I regret that now. As soon as I heard noise in the next cabin, I ran over and begged Anne to let me in. She was shocked to see me up so early. The first thing I did was sit her down and make her look at the pictures that I had taken. She tried so hard to explain it all the way, but I think she realized how messed up it was. She thought that we should just stay quiet and go back to our normal cruise activities. Keep our noses out of business that wasn't ours. I wanted to argue, because whatever was happening was clearly shady and probably illegal. But after last night's close call, I didn't think that I should be taking the risk. So I let it go. I still wouldn't leave the cabin. Anne was nice enough to sneak food from the buffets to bring back into me and we passed the day with card games and TV shows. I even managed to fall asleep a little bit after dinner. I was wide awake and reviewing the pictures on my laptop for the tenth time when the knocking started. They had announced themselves as maintenance, saying that there was a problem with the room. Anne woke up and I went to answer. I swear I tried everything to stop her looking back, it probably wouldn't have helped. I hid in the closet. It was really the only place to hide in these cabins. I just knew that whoever was knocking, it wasn't good. And I didn't want them to know that I was here. It was over before I could even think about intervening. Anne's voice had gone from confused to muffled in an instant. It sounded like she had tried to fight. But she was easily overpowered and dragged out of the room. She's not here. The voice through the wall had stunned me. Probably snuck out again. They were in my cabin. Well, if she's outside, she's fair game. Should we get a backup? Better ask the captain. I waited until the voices were gone and then I took off down the hallway. I wasn't even sure that I was going the right way, but I thought it was the direction that they had taken Anne. This ship felt like a maze tonight. I ran blindly down hallways, making wild guesses and finding more dead ads than I knew existed. I opened every stairwell that I found, listened for noise, and moved on. I prayed they were still on this deck, and if not, I might never find them. After what felt like the millionth wrong turn, I had to stop and catch my breath. A little clarity finally came over me, and I found the nearest door out to the deck. I looked both ways and thought that I saw movement near the back of the ship, so I ran. I came around a corner to see Anne, alone, gagged and bound to the railing by her wrist. With no crew in sight, I ran to her, pulled the gag off, and started untying her. She thanked me, her face wet with tears. I heard a door open behind me and worked faster at the ropes. There were at least two people judging by the yelling. 
and one of the voices sounded familiar. I untied Anne just in time and yelled for her to run and get inside. I wasn't sure why, but something that I had heard back in the cabin made me think that she'd be safer indoors. Two young men from the crew were rushing at me, and the first thing I did was put myself between them and Anne, hopefully giving her time to get away. I need the first one. It was the angry guy from two nights ago, solidly between the legs, dropping him to the deck. The other one tried to shove past me, but I grabbed him by the jacket and pulled him off his feet. I managed to stay on top of him for a minute, but he was struggling hard. I held on to whatever I could until something broke and I was shoved off and out of the deck. The first guy stumbled back to his feet. I thought that he was coming for me or maybe going after Anne, but he ran back the way that he had come. I looked back towards the railing. Something was creeping up the side of the ship, so pale that it was almost translucent. Four long digits felt their way up the railings and then a fifth, a fully formed hand. Each finger larger than my whole body, it slid up and over the railing, skimming along the deck. It hovered near the guy that I had just been fighting with. He reached for his neck, searching. He looked to me and I opened my hand to reveal the silver pendant. He dove towards me, screaming incoherently. The hand was faster. It descended on him like a cage, and then wrapped its fingers around him one at a time. Everywhere, the pale white skin touched him, his clothes were burned away, and his skin was scorched black in an instant. Screams of pain echoed around me, and I was choked by the scent of burning flesh. I clutched the pendant to my chest and prayed that it wouldn't notice me. He kept eye contact with me the entire time he was being lifted over the railing. I think he expected me to save him somehow. Driven by shock, I crawled to the edge and looked over. I could see the rest of the monster's arm glistening under the moonlight. Its skin stretched thin over bones and bulging at the joints. The elbow was crashing into the sea, where I am grateful that everything else was hidden in the pitch black waters below. I watched the man that I had inadvertently doomed being dragged into the water still screaming. For his sake, I hoped that it was quick. After the water had gone still, I heard a shout. Within seconds, I was surrounded and being dragged back inside. They took back my stolen pendant and locked me up in a little cell in the security office. They tried to interrogate me, but I answered their questions with my own. They wanted to know where my camera was. I wanted to know where Anne was. They wanted to know everything that I saw and wanted to know why we were doing this. And we went in circles for a good long while, but no one got any answers. Right now, I'm still locked up in security with a phone that I stole from one of the crewmen. It doesn't have cell service out here, so it's only the ship's Wi-Fi. And I don't have any of my pictures for proof. This is the best that I can do. I still don't know why they were feeding that thing. I'm starting to wonder if it's real purpose of bringing a cruise this far south. I'm pretty sure I at least know why Anne and I were chosen. Both traveling alone. Easy targets. And easy enough to make up an accident for me or natural causes for her. On a ship this size, they've got plenty more to choose from. I don't know how many others they're going to sacrifice. They spent at least three days chumming the water, so I'm betting they warmed it up for a good feast.
It's only a matter of how many they think they can get away with. I'm an OTR truck driver. There are skinwalkers hiding in the desert of Arizona. Written by Endless Matter 1. Hi everyone, I'm not the best at telling stories, but uh, this is one that I need to get off my chest. If you get nauseous when I get down into the details, turn away now. I will not be sparing any. My name is James and I'm a truck driver originally from Virginia. I travel the states delivering loads of supplies to companies that have hired me. You may have seen me in some of the truck stops in your local state. Now I've encountered numerous strange things during my year in the industry. Ranging from torn up trailers all the way to careless accidents on the highway. However, what I'm about to tell you takes the cake by far. I was tasked to deliver a load coming out of Arkansas to Southern California, which meant that I had to travel west on I-10. I had high hopes of finding an alternate route to the destination, but there was no luck. It was going to take me straight through Arizona to California on the one highway I wanted so badly to avoid. Why you ask? Well, growing up, I was told many stories of Navajo legends, such as these skinwalkers that lived around that area. It frightened me often as a child, and honestly, it still does to this day, even as an adult. I'm 25 now for reference, and these stories only terrified me more. Countless other drivers have warned me to avoid parking overnight in southern Arizona due to the sheer number of driver disappearances. It was quite high to say the least. And on top of that, many other people besides just drivers come up missing as well without a trace. So, you can bet that I was terrified to drive this way. I picked up my load in Arkansas and started my 1,700 mile journey to the destination. The first night went just fine. I made it roughly halfway into Texas before having to stop for the night. Since I could only drive for 11 hours a day and I had about an hour left. The next morning, I picked up where I left off on my journey, driving right into New Mexico. At this time, I had gotten a phone call from one of my buddies. Um, for this story, we'll call him Joe. Joe calls in at roughly 1500 mountain time, and I'm about three-fourths of the way through New Mexico. We chat about a bunch of things like science and technology, Elon Musk, and some other things that I can't really remember the details of at this time. It had been roughly two hours since he had called, and he was saying goodbye 
when I realized that I wasn't in New Mexico anymore. I hadn't really been paying attention to the area that I was in, being distracted by the conversation and the phone call. I was now in Arizona, with very few hours left to drive. I began to panic and decided that I wasn't going to stop for a while since I still had an hour and a half left of driving time. I continued on my path, starting to become slightly drowsy, even to the point where I really shouldn't be driving anymore. And so I pulled into a Love's truck stop for the night, hoping to get some decent shut-eye. The truck stop was in the desert areas of Arizona, and not very many other places nearby. I parked, went off duty, and climbed into my bed to go to sleep. About 15 minutes after getting into bed, my truck shuts off. Now, this is odd, since I had left the key engaged and my doors were all locked. I walk into the cab of my truck to find the keys still engaged, the tank half full, but my truck completely off. When I went to start it, I couldn't even get a sound from the engine. It was as if somebody had tampered with it while I was in bed. I get out of my truck, open the hood and look for anything that could possibly be missing. The truck stop was well illuminated, so I didn't really need my flashlight. As I pulled open the engine bay, I immediately noticed something was wrong. The entire head was pulled off of my motor, and upon closer inspection, my spark plugs were removed as well. At this point, I was a little bit mad, because it was obvious that someone had tampered with my truck. I began to walk over to the repair shop on site, when all of the lights went out of the truck stop. And I don't just mean the parking lot lights. The lights for the signs, inside of the store. Heck, even the parking lights for other trucks went out. I was in complete darkness, and alone outside. I quickly booked it back to my truck, and locked the doors up when I got inside. And then I closed the curtains to my sleeping area, so no one could see in. The lights going out weren't the worst thing ever. I could have tolerated it had it not been for all the other trucks' lights also going out, as well as the area that I was in. I laid there in bed for what seemed like hours, occasionally glancing out of my window to see if any of the lights were now back on. They weren't, just so you know. I glanced at my watch. 20 hours. I had only been there for about an hour. I began to hear a soft tapping at my window. It was rhythmic, like someone was tapping on a tune on the glass with their fingernail. I didn't dare look. It kept going for about 30 seconds and then it stopped. I sighed a soft breath of relief thinking that whoever it was had left me alone 
or hopefully they didn't think anyone was in the truck. For some reason, and don't ask me why, I got up and I pulled back my curtain to hopefully catch a glimpse of whoever it was. When I didn't see anyone, I closed the curtain and I laid it back down. And that's when the tapping started again, only louder and faster this time. Whoever was out there before must have seen me, and they weren't going to leave this time. Nervously, I peered through my curtain while the tapping was going on to see who it could be. What I saw will haunt my dreams for the rest of my life. It was a woman, tall with dark hair. I couldn't make out any facial features due to how dark it really was, but it appeared that her eyes were sunken in. It looked as if she hadn't gotten any sleep in years, like she was just a hollow shell of a person that she used to be. She noticed me looking and smiled at me. Let me in, dearie. I need some help. She said in a very low and shallow voice. It reminded me of a longtime smoker who had trouble with projecting their voice. I shook my head slowly and nervously. I don't know of any way that I could help you. I'm sorry. I said, trying not to sound shaken up but not really doing well at it. Her smile only grew wider at this, sending a shiver down my spine. Her entire face seemed to contort as her smile continued to get wider and wider. I closed the curtain and laid back down in bed shaking with fear. Now, I'm not a small guy. I'm about 6'4 on a good day, with an average build. So, a lady like her shouldn't have scared me this badly. Yet still, I lay in bed, petrified. It was then that I heard her voice outside once again. That low, gravelly voice. Well then, I'll just ask the guy next to you, she said. I heard a giggle, and then gravel crunching as she walked away. Stupidly enough and not learning, I looked back through the curtain. She walked over to the next driver's truck and tapped on his window. I watched as he came to the front and rolled down his window to see what she needed. She must have asked him the same question because no sooner than he rolled down the window was he getting out of his truck to follow her somewhere. I wanted to roll down my window and yell at him and tell him not to do it, that you have to believe me. But in this moment, I was too terrified to even move. I couldn't speak. My heart was beating so quickly that I could hardly even catch my own breath. She walked him around the front of his truck and down the passenger side, right next to my truck, stopping just right below my window. He stopped behind her, looking a bit puzzled, 
as to what she really needed. She had to have known that I was there looking, because she looked right at me with that same smile. The smile that made her entire face twist as it went ear to ear. I watched as her smile then faded into something sinister, something dark and ominous. Her skin, it began peeling off her face with every passing second, her gaze never leaving mine. I still couldn't move. All I could do was look back and forth between her and the man. In a second, she had turned around and stabbed the man through the chest. Not with a knife or any other sharp object, with only her hand. It was still dark outside with no lights, but I could see the pain and surprise on the man's face as his heart was ripped from his chest. She pulled at it again, her skin just fell completely off of her face. It was like watching someone peel a banana. The top just fell and the rest followed suit. With heart in hand, she reached down and grabbed the man's leg and started to drag him off behind the truck stop. But before she left, she looked back up at me and said in that same familiar voice, I'll be back for you soon, dearie. I couldn't sleep at all last night, and I don't think that I'll be able to sleep very well in the coming nights either. That, however, doesn't worry me. I'm more worried about my truck getting repaired so I can leave this crazy place. It isn't scheduled to be repaired until tomorrow, since it's only a small mechanic shop, and they have a bit of a line in front of me. She could come back for me at any time, and I don't know when it'll be. If you're reading this, please stay away from the deserts of Arizona. Who knows, you could be next. I worked in a prison. Something evil has broken out. Written by Doomed Geek. I did not define myself as an executioner, though this was part of who I was. First and foremost, I would say that I was a husband and father. I have two girls, both grown up and moved out. I had a son as well. He was stillborn. I find it hard to describe the hurt that this caused and the pain and confusion which followed. The other significant thing that made me who I was was my job. I was a correctional officer at a maximum security facility located on the outskirts of my hometown. When I was a child, my father used to warn me that if I was bad, that I would be sent to the big building and locked in a cell until I was old and gray and my teeth fell out, and that if I was really bad, they would fry me. He died of cancer 10 years ago. He was a 58-day man, and the darkness which spread through his lungs took its sweet time. 
Whenever I could, over the last few months of his life, I used to sit by his bed and read to him. His grasp of what was happening around him was pretty much shot by the end, and he was clearly not following the magazine articles or the short stories that I had been reading. Then I found a bunch of old comic books lying around in a table in the hospital and I thought, why not? I sat and read through the captions and the speech bubbles, making all of the sounds. They were about monsters, stupid really, but I noticed that he was responding. It was nothing more than the faintest trace of a smile or a flicker of his eyelid, but I believed it was some comfort to him. Long before he fell ill, it was my father who had encouraged me to become a correctional officer. It was, as he said, a job with a future. We ain't ever gonna run out of criminals, as he put it. And there was a healthcare plan and a pension. So I went for the interview and passed all of the aptitude tests. Since I began working at the facility, the job has changed. A lot of this, I would say, was down to the management. The state used to run the facility and there was an emphasis on education and rehabilitation, even for the lifers. Then the facility moved into private ownership and a new ethos of just keep them locked away came in. Blow were flawed in my opinion, but it was a good job and by the time I reached a certain age, it was too late to walk away and start again. My health plan and pension had been joined by a mortgage, a car payment, and college funds and credit card debt. So I stuck at it and did the best that I could. Two years ago, I took on the responsibility of coordinating the executions which took place intermittently at the facility. This was done via lethal injection. I believe this was the most humane way of seeing that the rule of law was carried out for those who had been judged guilty of the most heinous crimes and found wanting. I also received an additional payment for each execution. Last Friday evening, I was working the late shift. This was because an execution was scheduled for shortly after midnight. As I left the house, I called out to my wife. I love you, as I always did. She did not reply. She had not been well since we had lost her son. She spent most of her days and nights in the room that had been made into a nursery, clinging on. And each year, she marked the day he came so small and so still from her womb. Martin is three today, she would say. Martin is four. Broke my heart, and I tried to get her to change her ways. Believe me, I tried. But there was no moving on for her. I called out. I'll see you in the morning and I drove to work. It was always humid at this time of year, but the conditions that evening were the worst that I had ever known. The humidity felt like it was pressing down on me, and a headache was building behind my eyes. I could tell, though, that there is a storm brewing, and I was praying for it to break, for the rain to fall and to clear the air, even if only for a few hours. By the time that I parked... The wind had got up and I was hopeful that my wishes would come true. I signed in and went to work. For me, this was all about the details. I checked in with the governor's office that he would be on time. I called the doctor to make sure that he had everything that he needed. 
My message to the chaplain to check that he was being given access to the condemned man. And then I gave the room where the execution would take place and the viewing area next door a thorough cleaning. Finally, I briefed the staff who would be on duty with me. We were already familiar with the man who would be executed. He had murdered a woman who had been the same age as my youngest daughter in a cold, drawn-out ordeal. He had been an inmate for 20 years and had been through appeal after appeal. I had no sympathy for him now that the endgame had been reached. I saw no concerns in the eyes of my colleagues either. He was collected from his cell at 11.30. Even shackled, he had a swagger to him. His head, clean-shaven, glistened with sweat. A scar on his forehead was a pale line. The faded colors of the tattoo of a serpent spiraling up his neck. The red and green. It looked a little brighter as the heat continued to intensify, and the sweat ran down his skin. He was strapped onto a steel cot and an intravenous tube fixed in place. I was positioned nearby, close enough to look him in the eye as the chemicals began to enter his bloodstream. There were no final words and no regret shown. At 12.08, the doctor confirmed that the prisoner was dead. I covered the body and wheeled it through to the small infirmary which we always set aside at the holding area on these occasions. It would be collected in the morning. I was trying to decide if I wanted coffee or a cold can of soda when I heard the thunder. It was sharp and powerful. Deep inside the prison, I had not seen the lightning, but when, seconds later, there was a second, louder thunderclap. I knew the storm that had been threatening earlier had arrived with a vengeance. I chose coffee and went to the officer's lounge to see if there was a pot on the go. The overhead lights flickered on the way as the thunder sounded again and again. This, I thought, was one mother of a storm. I had no idea. I had just reached the officer's lounge when the power went off. I stood in the darkness and I waited. Like every organization under the sun, the facility was dependent on electricity and computers. If the power goes off in a home, the contents of the freezer might spoil in a prison, the potential outcome is chaos. That's why the facility had a backup power system, which kicked into operation seconds after the mains had failed. I counted in my head. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three. It sure was taking its time tonight, but I wasn't worried. When the power went off, all the doors were designed to remain locked. The inmates would be kept secure. Four Mississippi, five. The lights flickered once more. The small fridge in the lounge began to hum. It was going to be fine. And then the lights surged, brilliant and blinding for a moment, before darkness returned. I swore and the background chatter on the radio affixed to my belt exploded into a torrent of panic. The cells are opening. The phone lines are down. Code red. Inmates are at liberty. Repeat. Dozens of voices talked over each other. The last thing that was needed in a situation like this was panic, but that was all that I was hearing. I tried to keep my breathing regular and made my way to the armory. There were half a dozen other officers already there when I had arrived, and they were putting on riot gear. 
Kevlar vests, visors, helmets, and head torches until the dang lights came back on. All were armed. I joined them and got myself kitted up. The sounds of screaming voices were beginning to echo through the building, and all the while the thunder continued, and the panicked radio chatter. The National Guard are saying that there are incidents outside that are priority. What the heck? Officers in distress. Help me. Help. Oh, God. Swallowing down bile, I joined a line of men. Our ranks swollen a little, but not by enough. Not nowhere near. And we set off towards the central corridor where the main population had been housed. To get there, we had to pass through the infirmary. It had been less than 30 minutes since I had left the executed man's body there, but it felt like a lot longer. I told myself to focus and I hurried forwards, but movements inside the infirmary caught my eye. It should have been empty, unless inmates that had escaped from their cells had made their way there already. I tapped the officer in front of me on the shoulder, jerked my thumb in the direction of the open door to the infirmary. My fellow officer understood that I was indicating potential threat, and we entered the room together with our weapons raised. My pulse began to raise. The sweat which soaked my skin turned to ice. He stood in the center of the room. I could make out the serpent on his neck, the red of its eyes, the green of its scales, his shaven head, his scar. His skin was darker and mottled. The doctor had said that he was dead, and yet here he was. I did not understand. I could not speak. He saw me and he smiled, and he began to walk towards me. The other officer pointed his gun. Not another step, he said, but he sounded very scared. But the man, the man who had been pronounced dead, and whose face I had covered and wheeled here, kept going. Each step was a clumsy, shuffling movement and his body jerked as if it was being constantly shocked by electricity. Drill spilled from his open mouth and the sound of a quiet, guttural moan. The other officer opened fire. The bullet slammed into the man's chest and he staggered backwards with the force of the impact. A second shot hit him in the shoulder, and he was thrown to the left. I was aware the other officer was looking at me, and even beneath his visor I could make out the confusion clouding his face. Those two shots should have put the man down. He should not be standing, not still coming closer. Closer still. I had my gun raised and ready to be used. I was no longer in control though. Terror had robbed me of the ability to do anything but stand and stare. As the man reached out and clamped at the officer's shoulders, and then threw him out the open door, back into the corridor. His steps, as ungainly as before, the man then followed. I had to do something I had to help. I bit my tongue and felt sharp pain, tasted blood in my mouth, and this snapped me out of it. I staggered after him. The officer laid sprawled on the floor. His visor and helmet lay discarded nearby, and the man crouched over him, biting him, tearing at his skin. Red sprayed and some hit my visor. I recoiled. I felt dizzy, distant, and a hazy thought came to me. A memory. Captions in a comic book that I had read to my dying father. A story about monsters that came back from the dead. I saw a speech bubble. The only way to kill them is to shoot them in the brain. 
I shook my head and my vision cleared. There was no way that I could fire without hitting the other officer, but he was gone already, I had realized. Hand shaking, I pressed the barrel of the gun against the back of the man's head and I pulled the trigger. Red and matter and bone exploded out, and the man went limp, laying unmoving on the body of the officer. I gasped in breath after breath, and I had done it. I took off my visor to wipe it clean. The officer's leg twitched. A spasm, I knew. A last reflex of nerves. A corpse's dance. The officer's arm pushed up at the man's body, rolled it off, and the officer sat up. His nose had been torn clean off when he had been attacked, and most of one cheek. A strip of skin hung from his forehead, and it revealed below shone pink in the light of the torch that I still wore. The officer got to his feet, staggered to one side and then found his balance. He looked at me. His eyes were clouded over, unreadable. And then his mouth twisted, exposing his teeth. And I remembered the spectacle of the man devouring his face. I knew that would not be my fate. Hey, you! Someone shouted. Jeers followed. Obscenities were yelled. I looked past the officer and saw a group of freed inmates walking down the corridor towards us. They were smiling and I knew why. They thought they had a couple of correctional officers at their mercy. The officer who had risen turned slowly and turned his face away from me and began to shuffle towards them. The inmates laughed and taunted and seconds later they attacked. Fists rained down and for a moment I lost sight of the officer and then the screaming began. The first inmate falling away, clutching their face and then another and soon I knew they too would be the same and they would rise again. I could not see I had any other choice. I unleashed a stream of bullets into them, the inmates and the officer. The hours that followed are hard to recall. I learned as I encountered new groups of officers that the prison was slowly being retaken from the rioting inmates. Casualties were horrific on both sides and what I had left had still yet to be discovered. I walked away and found my way outside. By now it was close to dawn. I could take no more. I started my car and drove. Sirens rose and fell in the distance. A helicopter clattered overhead. Power lines were down, smoke drifted from buildings. I turned on the car radio. A message urging calm was being broadcast. There was talk about storm damage, natural phenomena, nothing to be concerned about. I knew these were necessary lies, a cover up. I tried phoning my wife on my mobile, but there was no signal. I floored the accelerator. A man wandered into the road into my path and I swerved and just missed him. In the mirror, I saw him continue on his way, each step an unsteady shuffle. When I pulled up at my house, I was relieved to see that it appeared to be undamaged. I ran inside. My wife stood in the hallway. Her eyes were shining. Her cheeks were wet with tears. It's a miracle, she said and took me by the hand. I love my wife and I always will. We have shared so many things over the course of our marriage. The joy of the day that we were joined in a simple service in the chapel. 
and the passions that consumed us in the nights that followed. The births of our daughters and watching them grow up, sharing sunsets and lazy evenings, standing in the cemetery as the small coffin was lowered into the ground after the funeral service for our son. And we have shared a secret, one that has been with me every day since, one which all I could think about as my wife led me through the house and through the open door, and I grew more and more afraid. The secret that we shared. The coffin we buried that day was empty. Our son's remains have laid instead, over all these years in the nursery, and the cot which I looked into, and saw the bones of fingers clawing at the air, saw leg bones kicking, and a toothless jaw open in a silent scream. I was held hostage by my housemates. They wouldn't let me leave. Written by Trash Tia It's always been a nightmare of mine, getting kicked out. When I was a kid, I had this weird obsession with dreaming about being thrown out, which didn't make sense because my parents are good people, and yet my younger self saw them as terrible monsters. My mom and dad supported me through my childhood, but still, there I was, dreaming my father was throwing me out onto the streets at seven years old, with nothing but my Spongebob backpack, spilling an unnecessary amount of books and a dozen candy bars. It was always snowing in my dreams too, and I was ankle deep in the stuff but I was never cold. It's a well known fact that you can feel what happens in your dreams, whether it's being stuck in a flurry of a swirling white snow, or being stabbed in the gut by the boogeyman under your bed. I never felt the cold of the snow or the numbness of my bare fingers and toes. I didn't feel anything. There was never a reason for these dreams. I loved my parents and my vanilla life of playing with dolls and arguing with my brother over whose turn it was on the PS3. In my mind, I knew I was safe. I had parents that loved me and a roof over my head. I would always have that security. The dreams didn't scare me, but they did make me wonder if there was something wrong deep, deep down. That wasn't normal for a seven-year-old, right? I remember being into the Nancy Drew books. Anything which was mystery or fantasy. Of course, read to me by my mom. I ate it all up. All those imaginary worlds fascinated me, and I was bored with my own mundane life. Maybe I craved my very own adventures, like the ones in those fictional worlds. Or I was a psychopath. I don't know, I never really thought about it again. Until 11 years later. Isaac, I knocked again harder this time. Let me in. I was surprised how calm my tone was considering the situation. I had already been having a pretty crappy day. Sleeping through my alarm was bad, but I wasn't ready for what the day had in store for me. I had managed to forget my jacket and sub-zero temperatures. Being yelled at in class for not fully paying attention. And then I had to present a group presentation on my own after my teammates bailed on me last minute. And that went as well as you would expect, considering I had done all the work the night before. 
which was the primary reason why I was so out of it. And the cherry on the top of my day came much later when I found myself locked out of the student house that I shared with three others. I'm not going to say there was no reason for kicking me out because there was. I wasn't paying. At least, I had been paying until I lost my part-time position at the coffee shop down the road. Mom and Dad were struggling, so asking them was out of the question. I had to make a decision, eating or paying rent. It's pretty obvious which one I chose. I thought that I would be able to get a job, but after hundreds of applications sent out and no replies, not even a hint of interest, I was starting to lose hope. So yeah, I could understand why I had been thrown out. What I couldn't understand, however, was why there had been no warnings. I had been expecting them since I owed maybe two months, but there had been nothing. Sorry, Lou. My housemate didn't sound sorry. We're under strict instructions not to let you in since you ain't been paying. He had been keeping quiet until I had changed tactics. Instead, slamming my fist into the soft wood. I had already grabbed the handle, but somehow it felt wrong, especially when I knew that it wouldn't open. Isaac had made sure of that. His words were final. I had to clamp my mouth shut to swathe away frustrated screech. I wasn't going to beg. I wasn't going to tell them that I had been struggling to live on canned food and ramen for almost two months now, and that I could barely afford necessities. Isaac, it's freezing. Yeah, it's pretty cold. Well, can you let me in? I snapped. I need to get my stuff. He was quiet for a moment before opening the door and slipping something through the gap before slamming it shut in my face. It's easy to hallucinate when you barely had any sleep. The message in front of me, however, was far too real. Bolded and underlined like I was short-sighted. It was still a kick in the face even when I had known that it was coming. The words were firm and to the point. No sugarcoating. Urgent. I flinched at the string of exclamation marks. Did they really need that many? My eyes went funny, blurring around the edges after reading and rereading the content multiple times. Immediate eviction notice for Lou Thompson on 10-15-21. Below that, in the smallest font possible, please visit the campus office to arrange alternative housing. If you would like to appeal your notice, please ring at the admin office open Monday through Friday at 9 to 5. And gripping the eviction notice between my fingers, I had to bite back a sob. So there had been a warning that had been hidden. I wasn't really surprised. My housemates regularly stabbed each other in the back, and Isaac was the usual suspect. Imagine Randall from recess as an adult. He had gotten a girl thrown out in the first month for smoking in her room. I waved the paper, my eyes burning with tears. It wasn't fair. Isaac was a trust fund kid with his own private bathroom. He didn't know or care about the ramifications, only that he was doing the right thing. How long had this been here? I don't know. Isaac's response was flippant. You know, Anna, she loses things all the time. I felt my cheeks ablaze. Isaac, how long have you known about this? He hesitated. It was on the countertop when I got back from class. Look, don't blame me. 
You're the one who's been dodging paying rent. I've gotta go, okay? I think the campus office is open, so you should be able to make it still. I could sense his smug smile. It's going to drop pretty low tonight. You know how bad it gets in Canada this time of year. I'm so sorry that you didn't get the eviction notice earlier. Uh, right. I could see my breath when I let out a sharp sob and I couldn't hold it in anymore. I had to hug myself to stay warm, but my sweater wasn't helping. It was so cold I just wanted to go to bed. Can I at least get my jacket? Mm, I don't think that would be a good idea. I'd be breaking the rules, Lou. F yourself. That's what I wanted to spit instead, though. I forced myself to smile despite my world crumbling around me. I wouldn't give him the satisfaction of knowing that he had gotten to me. Glancing at my phone, the time was treading towards five. Thankfully, it didn't start snowing until I had pushed through the old wooden doors of the student help office. Located on the edge of campus, the building was ancient and crumbling. When I had stepped inside, a welcome blast of heat hit me in the face and I felt marginally better. Sitting behind the front desk was a woman, maybe in her mid-fifties, frowning at a laptop. In front of her was a dog-eared copy of War and Peace and an overflowing cup of coffee. I didn't know what looked more pathetic. Me, trying not to cry while hugging warmth into myself. Or the dying plant near the door that I almost knocked over. I headed over to the desk and rehearsed the words in my head. But when the woman's gaze flicked from her book to me, my mind blanked. Oh, hello. The woman greeted me with a wide smile and folded the page of her book before putting it down. Oh, are you alright? Her smile prickled into a frown. Where on earth is your coat? I'm fine, I said, trying to maintain composure. I've been evicted from my student room. Her eyes widened. What's your ID number? 135670, I said. And she typed it into her laptop. Lou Thompson, she said. Very flowery. I knew she was trying to keep me calm, but I was running purely on fight or flight. Thanks. The woman didn't seem to mind my response, her eyes fixed on her laptop screen. Ah, yes, it seems you've been removed from the tenure agreement. She lifted her eyes to me. You received an eviction notice three days ago, notifying you of action being taken due to two missed payments despite signing a contract. The woman must have seen my expression, quickly changing her tone. Oh, I'm just reading what's on the screen. I'm sorry, this is all quite doom and gloom. Give me a moment, please. I watched her frenzied typing before her eyes found mine once more. Unfortunately, the main office is closed right now, or I would normally be able to get in touch with someone who could help you with your case. They'll be open first thing tomorrow. She trailed off. Which will not help your case. You need somewhere to go tonight. Her eyes danced between her laptop and her coffee mug, before her lips broke into a reassuring smile. Oh, don't worry, Lou. There are protocols in place for your type of situation. We'll call it emergency housing and no. It's not as scary as you might think. Emergency housing... The woman nodded enthusiastically. 
Yes, basically, if a student is left with nowhere else to go or is in a vulnerable situation, we put them into what we call emergency housing, which is just a broader term for a temporary placement. What we do is visit the student houses, dorms if it's our last option, and we put you with tenants willing to have another housemate for the night. You're not the first student to have to go through this, Lou, and certainly will not be the last. She stood and shut down her laptop, her hands sifting through piles of paper. Um, give me a moment. I have the applications around here somewhere. Aha. I felt my stomach curl into itself when the woman held up a piece of paper. Just write down your situation and sign at the bottom. I didn't move for a moment. I couldn't help taking notice of her grabbing a jacket and pulling it on. The idea of walking around at minus temperatures... Begging strangers to let me stay the night made me feel sick to my stomach. Uh, I'm okay, I said. I can, uh, my dad actually lives down the road. The lady paused and grabbed her things. Lou, if your father lived down the road, why would you be here? Opening my mouth to argue, I realized there was no point. I grabbed the application form and the pen and I wrote my name and then three lines describing that I had been kicked out. When I was done, the receptionist was making her way towards me, carrying a jacket and a can of something. I'll do the talking, don't worry. It's only for one night, and then we'll make sure to get some more permanent housing sorted out. She handed me the jacket, and I managed a grateful smile. When I pulled it on, the sleeves were a little too long, but it was perfect. The woman acted like my grandma, zipping it up and thrusting the can she had been carrying into my hands. Upon closer inspection, I realized it was what looked like a can of hot chocolate. I couldn't tell because the text was in Japanese though. The woman beamed. She was pulling on a pair of gloves. I cracked open the can and took an experimental sip. She waited for my reaction, her smile widening. My son recently moved to Japan and he sent me these. At first I wasn't sure, but between you and me, Lou, I can't stop drinking them. I was sure the drink was supposed to be heated, but it wasn't bad. Maybe sweeter than normal chocolate milk, but I liked it. I drained half the can while the woman hurried around the office like a frantic wasp. She talked to me conversationally, grabbing her bag and her keys. I wasn't surprised when Joey had moved to Japan. My great-grandmother was a powerful seer. Our family has been in touch with the spirit world for a while. Joey was a businessman for 20 years and was unhappy. When he told me that he was following his dreams of moving to North Japan with several friends, she didn't stop talking the whole time. Her words weren't quite registering, though they were comforting. I tried to smile when she had switched off the lights in the office and took me back through the entrance leading outside. There wasn't too much snow on the ground, but the air was icy and cruel, whipping my cheeks. I quickly learned the woman's name was Jane, though our stories became more of a white noise when we had reached the first house. It wasn't a long walk, thankfully. When the door opened and a half-asleep girl peered out, Jane didn't even get to speak. Her gaze fell on me and she rolled her eyes. We're full, she said before shutting the door in our faces. 
The second house wasn't much better. Frat boys who invited us to a party instead. I had lost count of how many people had turned us away. Some people were nice but firm. The fourth or fifth house were small and homely, maybe Victorian. There was no garden except from a small patch of grass which looked like it had seen better days. The house was different from the other properties. This one seemed older. There was a set of stone steps that I had to drag myself up. I have a good feeling about this one. Jane nudged me, flashing me a smile. I could only manage a nod, frowning at the ivy twisted up old red brick. Jane knocked three times, and I held my breath when the door finally opened, spilling golden light. There was a figure, but I refused to look up and face another rejection. Jane started to speak, before the tenant let out an exaggerated sigh. I've got the door. The guy seemed to be talking to someone inside. I detected an accent. It was strong, Australian. When I plucked up enough courage to look up, there was a kid poking his head through the door. A guy. The first thing that I noticed was his hair. A mop of red curls hanging in shadowed eyes. His skin was pale, and the contrast with his hair was appealing in ways I couldn't really explain. Everything about him struck me as warm and cozy. Maybe it was the golden light spilling around him from the hallway, or his expression, but I instantly knew this house was different. There were no judgmental eyes or tight lips. The guy looked at us. He wasn't smiling, but the muscles in his face were twitching into one. I don't suppose any of you have fajita-style double cheese on ya. Jane looked confused. She sent me a panicked look that I could only frown at. It's a joke, he said, leaning against the doorframe and folding his arms. You know, funny, haha. Jane laughed too. A little forest. Oh, oh, a joke, I guess. That's very funny. She looked at her list, which she was barely clinging onto. The icy air was cruel, trying to snatch it from her grasp. You must be a tenant of number 24. Good evening. Oh, goodness, there's no name on here. You must be. The guy cut her off. Just call me boy, he said with a shrug. What's up? Hello, well, my name is Jane Cleese. I work at the emergency housing department and this young lady has had a bad day. She doesn't have any place to go and it's my job to find her emergency housing. Would you be so kind to allow her to stay the night? You and the other two tenants will be fully compensated. And really, she's a lovely girl. It's only temporary until first thing tomorrow morning. While she spoke, I kept my eyes on my sneakers. I could feel my cheeks getting progressively warmer. My gut twisting itself into a frenzy. When Jane continued on, the words fell into nullity in my mind. I had heard them so many times, they didn't even mean anything anymore. Well, sure. His words surprised me and I looked up. Jane's eyes snapped to the boy, a smile breaking out on her lips. Oh, that would be wonderful. She nudged me with her elbow. See, I knew that we would find someone. What a kind young man. The guy chuckled. Ah, sure, she can stay. As long as she doesn't pee or crap everywhere. Jane looked mildly horrified and the guy sighed, widening the door.
Hey, another joke. That time, I did meet his eyes, and they were laughing. Everything about him was laughing, and the knot of my gut began to unravel. He gestured inside. Hey, come on in. We got a spare room, so you're welcome to have it. The door's kind of janky, and the wardrobe's a little too small if you have a lot of stuff. But we can get you another one. As for Wi-Fi, laundry, and food, you're free to use it as long as you contribute a little. Though there's no pressure. His accent was so strong that I was struggling to fully make out what he was saying. We have a games console and a chair, but you can wait like five hours or more for a turn, and you manage to wrestle the controller off of Connor, and then you're all good. I replayed what he was saying in my head, and every conclusion I came to was the same. This kid was speaking like I was staying for longer than a night, and Jane seemed to be thinking the same thing. Oh, can she stay a little longer, she said excitedly. Obviously, we don't push past one night, though. It would work in our favor. It's going to take me at least a few days to process the application. The guy nodded easily, again cutting Jane off. I mean, if she wants to. We've been wanting a new housemate for a while, actually. Jane turned to me, her eyes wide. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I said, avoiding the guy's amused smile. Jane was ecstatic. When she turned to the guy, though, her expression seemed to dampen for a second. Her smile, however, didn't disappear. Ah, the woman chuckled lightly, her gaze suddenly going to the sheet of paper in her hand. It appears that I've done it again. When she turned to me, her smile wasn't quite as bright and chipper. It's a lovely house, sweetheart, Jane said. I'll leave you to get settled, okay? Call me if you need anything. She didn't look up from her list when she said goodbye. I opened my mouth to thank her, but the woman had already disappeared back on the steps and straight into the dark. When her footsteps had faded, I had half a mind to follow her. I was staring after her when the guy laughed. It was a good laugh, and I found myself liking it. What's up with her? He poked his head further into the snow falling around us. Dancing flakes landing on thick strands of red hair falling in warm brown eyes. She looks like she's seen a ghost. Uh, she's just cold, I bet. Uh-huh. The guy clicked his tongue. Well, as much as I love standing out in the freezing cold, can we move this introduction to the inside, please? He gestured me through the door. You coming? Yeah, I managed to smile, stepping into a brightly lit hallway. I was automatically hit with warmth, an intense warmth that settled my jumping gut. The house was old-fashioned, but the good kind, with rustic colors decorating the hallway. Every door was rich mahogany in the carpet, a maroon color, which complemented a cream ceiling, the walls matching. When the guy twisted an ornate doorknob leading into the main hallway, I couldn't help but look around in awe, drinking everything in. I was stepping back in time. I found my words somewhere between kicking off my shoes and stumbling after the guy. Thanks for, uh... He turned, a smile curving on his lips. It's no problem, man. And if I'm honest, I'm just doing it for brownie points from bits. She's been wanting a female housemate for a while, and it's my turn to wash up tonight. He shot me a grin as he jumped up a rickety-looking staircase which looked ready to crumble. I figured if I bring her some new meat, I'll get out of washing last night's lasagna pans. I could only offer a nervous laugh. 
All right, let's do this. Introductions. He lapped up the steps, two at a time, but I hesitated. He must have seen my expression. I was frowning at the state of the old ready carpet, barely clinging to the steps. That was an accident waiting to happen. I'm Levi. As you can tell by my voice, I'm not from around here. I'm originally from Victoria in Australia. I moved here to follow my dreams, you know. Busking on the streets and all that. Turns out it's a lot harder than it looks, so I enrolled at CMU and here I am. When he had reached the top of the stairs, Levi leaned over the banister while I dragged my back up the rest. There were nails sticking out of each one. I hate bugs. Disney movies are kryptonite. If you grind your teeth near me, I'll shove my earphones in, and I have a passionate hatred for Olivia Rodriguez and take-out plastic sporics. Rodrigo, I found myself correcting him when I caught up. Levi shot me a pain lock. Don't tell me you're a fan, too. She's a daily occurrence on the Alexa. Which song? All of them, please save me. I laughed that time. And you? Huh? Your name? Oh, right, it's, uh, it's Lou. He whistled. Lou, nice to meet you, Lou. Welcome to our humble, if not slightly messy abode. Levi led me down a small hallway with light green walls, which again were homely. He pointed to the doors as he went. Bathroom, there's one downstairs too, but the faucet doesn't work. And then we have my bedroom at the end of the hallway. Next to that are Connor and Blitzies, and finally yours. He patted a heavy wooden door with a brass handle. I nodded and headed towards it, but his hand was on my shoulder, gently leading me back down the hallway. Levi pointed to a small alcove leading into a brightly lit room that I couldn't fully see. That's the kitchen, for all your kitchen needs, as you would probably have guessed we're all Michelin-style chefs here, so expect gourmet dishes such as cremated pepperoni pizza. He led me through another door. This time, the room was dark, lit up by a TV screen mounted on the wall. There was a game playing, and I recognized it. Call of Duty. In front of the TV were two figures. One was slumped on a beanbag on the carpet, and the other was curled up on a ratty-looking brown couch. Just like the rest of the house, the lounge had so much personality. The decor was simple. White walls and red carpet. Though, it was the mess around me that I took in. There were clothes everywhere. On every available surface were piles of laundry, the glass table in the middle of the room was covered in board games and hardback books, empty coffee mugs and beer cans. When I stepped further into the room, the figures in front of the TV bled into real people. The orange bobble hat was the first thing that I saw nestled on on the girl's head. It sat on top of messy brown curls framing a heart-shaped face. Sitting a few meters away was a guy with bed hair, who looked like he hadn't slept in a few days. Sleep circles, shadowing dark eyes. Levi strode over to the guy and yanked the controller from him. When the boy let out a sound of protest, Levi cleared his throat. Aren't you supposed to be writing your novel? I'm on a break, the boy groaned. Come on, give it back. This is going to kill me. Levi shook his head, nodding to me. These idiots are my housemates, he rolled his eyes. Connor's the one failing in God, and Bitsy's on the beanbag. Connor is a so-called writer, but he never actually writes, only telling people that he's going to write. Bitsy's a temporary dropout who enjoys collecting potted plants and is trying to be a vegan. So clearly these guys are pretty interesting people, huh? The other guy, Connor, twisted around, shooting me a friendly smile. Sup? And did Levi kidnap you? 
Bitsy dropped a controller and jumped up, rushing over and wrapping her arms around me. I got a whiff of lavender shampoo and one of her exotic plants she collected. The girl was a bundle of knitted cardigan and curly hair. You've got us a new housemate, she squeaked, pulling away. And she's a girl? Levi shrugged. Yeah, Bits, I just grabbed her off the street. Funny. She rolled her eyes at the boy, throwing a cushion in his face. When Levi grabbed one, she dodged his attack, pulling me out of the way. I'm Isidore, but those idiots call me Bitsy. The Itsy Bitsy Spider, Connor said. It's literally in the name. Bitsy glared at him. You're lucky it's a cute nickname. You've just earned yourself washing up duty. Levi chimed in, switching off the TV. Only because you're supposed to be doing it. Well, yeah, I've got a serious headache coming on. It hurts, man. You're on the road, Levi. Connor murmured. The Rhoda never lies. F the Rhoda. Anyway, Bitsy turned from the boys, sparring to me. What's your poison? Huh? She's asking if you want a drink. Connor stretched and stood up. It's hard to understand Bitsy's private language, but we're all getting there. When I first met her, she was just a white noise in my ears. Hey. Connor held out his hands to shield himself from a fluffy cushion aimed at his face. You was a little better than Levi, he laughed. His accent took me a while to get used to. Levi scoffed. Yeah, just jealous because I actually know what the sun looks like. When Bitsy grabbed my arm and pulled me into the kitchen to make coffee, I felt like I was at home. The kitchen was smaller than the lounge with a table and some chairs and the usual appliances scattered around. I stood in the doorway frowning at the empty glass on the table while Bitsy rifled through the cupboards. Do you like Tim Tams? Bitsy held up a pack. Levi's mom sends them from New Zealand. Don't tell him that I gave you one. She dropped two in front of me and took a bite out of one, grinning through a mouthful. I nodded and popped half of one into my mouth, reveling in the burst of chocolate. I took a sip of coffee, though I wasn't ready for the sludge that dripped down my throat. I was freezing. The milk was sour, badly sour, and I had to force it down. So, they were scatterbrained and forgot to change the milk. I could deal with that. Bitsy was an energy that I couldn't keep up with. Well, since Levi abandoned his tour, I'll continue it. She showed me the remaining rooms, ending on what looked like a games room. We're looking to turn this into some kind of office for Connor's writing. When we have permission from the landlord, of course. But right now, it's kind of just where we play games at. Mostly Monopoly where it becomes a sort of war zone between the boys. But I love them. They're like my brothers, you know. She folded her arms with a sigh. Like, I want to kill him most of the time, but then we play Smash all night and get wasted. And then they're my best friends. Heard that. Levi's voice floated from the kitchen. I'm selling you so you seem actually tolerable. Are you kidding? A loud splash. I have a great personality. A little later on, I was given a proper introduction to my room. It was bigger than the one that I had in my last house, and the bed was huge. I fell asleep pretty much as soon as my head hit the warm sheets. I didn't dream, but it was a peaceful sleep. Though I really didn't sleep for long, I was woken by an intense nausea in the pit of my gut. You know, the urge to throw up that makes your mouth water. I had that, but tenfold. I remembered Levi talking about two bathrooms. 
There was one in the hallway and then one downstairs. I had to get to the bathroom before the spoiled milk I had drank earlier made an unwelcome reappearance. According to my phone, it was nearly midnight. I was still in my clothes from earlier and when I stepped out of my room, I had to wrap my arms around myself. It was so cold. The bathroom was exactly where Levi said it was, but when I pulled at the silver handle, it was locked. Who locked a bathroom? The house was quiet. I figured the others were asleep or working in their rooms. The sickly feeling was getting worse, and I found myself in the kitchen grabbing a glass of water, but I couldn't swallow it down properly. At the back of the kitchen was another door with peeling paint and a broken handle. Bitsy had vaguely referred to it as the basement. I knew as I stood there that there was no way I was going to make it downstairs, and barfing in someone else's kitchen when you're a guest was practically a violation. I was yanking open the door and stumbling down stone steps before I could stop myself. The basement was bigger than I had imagined, lit up with an eerie metal light. My first priority was finding somewhere that I could barf and then clean it up after. Instead though, my gaze at first went to wait for the green bulb, spewing dying light. And then what was in the middle of the room, like an attraction, like it had been waiting for me to see it. At first I thought it was just that, an attraction or maybe a statue. The house was old, so it made sense my new housemates would haul the weird stuff into the basement. When I got closer, though, I realized that I was staring at two chairs back to back and slumped on them two figures. My steps halted when something slammed into me. It was nothing physical. It was a smell. A smell so intense, choking my nose and writhing in the back of my throat. I had to slam my hand over my mouth. The smell started to make sense, though, in a sick kind of way. It made sense in my head because what I was seeing sent the sour milk I had forced on earlier erupting up my throat. I felt my body, my entire being, go icy cold. Just like in the lounge earlier, it was the vividness of the orange hat that had attracted me to her. And when she had turned around and smiled at me, the whole room seemed to light up with her. Now, though... The same hat sat on limp brown curls, hanging in closed eyes. When I got close enough to fully take in the scene, my brain refused to register it. Bitsy, but not just Bitsy. Behind her, I glimpsed familiar curls and a plaid shirt, pale skin and freckles. Everything I had taken in earlier, drinking him in and seeing him as warm and cozy, the poster boy for life, considering the twinkle in his eyes and the grin stretched across his mouth. Levi. It couldn't be him. Couldn't be them, I thought. But I knew that what I was seeing was real. They were dead. I don't know how to explain this to you. I don't want to, but I need you to believe me. The two of them were dead. My brain refused to take several things in. Like the pool of congealed red at their feet. At Levi's hands bound to the chair, and the pool of hardened crimson on the floor in front of him, his curls matted with that same shade. That disgusting, cruel shade of red that painted them. But not just that, because if they were just dead, my story wouldn't exist. Lou. His voice was soft. I knew that he was behind me, but I refused to look. Instead, I looked at the real him, 
a skin that had been gray for days, and eyes that hadn't opened in a while. When I took slow, stumbled steps and circled the grim scene, I found the reason why Levi's head was hurting so much. Just looking at the two of them sitting in the cold, their feet bare on concrete, blood painting them, I knew they had suffered. They had hurt. The way Levi was angled, his body leaning back, his chin hitting his chest. Bitsy. The smearing of red decorating her chest, dyeing her pajama shirt. I staggered back, one step and then two. There was a voice at the back of my mind. Connor, I thought dizzily. Where was Connor's body? Levi stepped in front of me, in front of his own body. His smile was still bright, his eyes on me and only me. We should probably go back upstairs, he said. I expected his voice to break, for some inclination that he knew what he was in the presence of. It's getting kind of cold down here, don't you think? I couldn't move, couldn't breathe. No, I whispered. No, you're... Tired, Levi yawned. Come on, he'll be here soon. What? I let him drag me back upstairs, stumbling over every step that I took. Once we were back in the kitchen, back in the light, Levi laughed nervously. Yeah, we also happened to have a poltergeist. He gingerly stroked the back of his head, and I was starting to see it. Now the facade was crumbling. The true nature of the three of them began to bleed through. I was staring at the hole in the back of his head. Levi caught my stares. What is it? Nothing. It was nothing, but I couldn't say it. Connor collapsed into a chair with a sigh. Yeah, he's pretty annoying. We either stay in our rooms or we ride it out together. Bitsy wandered in, clutching a stuffed toy. Annoying is an understatement. I didn't know what to say. I watched as the three of them grabbed onto each other. Levi covered Bitsy's ears and Connor rested his head in his lap. I was waiting for something to happen, for one of them to suddenly start talking, start telling me what the heck was going on, before the kitchen door flew open. Connor, a voice thundered, though it was echoey and rumbling around the room, but there was nobody there. Levi's eyes were squeezed shut, Bitsy whimpering. I sensed it around me, an energy that I couldn't explain. I can't even write it down. There is a shadow on the wall creeping across the neat paintwork. Where is it? Where's the manuscript? Connor's voice. What the heck are you doing here? Get out of our house. Bitsy shrieked. I heard it loud and clear, watching the real Bitsy squeeze Levi's hands over her ears tighter. The girl was trembling, and the two boys seemed to lean into her, forming a protective barrier. Okay. Connor's voice hissed. I'll get it, just don't hurt them. It's got nothing to do with them. A laugh and chills crept on my spine. We'll get it then. The kitchen lights above me flickered on and off. I could almost feel them, these past versions. I could feel their fear, their pain and anger as more and more shadows bled into existence. The man's voice was back but louder. Thanks, Connor. I appreciate it. You know you could have made it. You showed me this every week, every effing week, and I'm ashamed to say, I started to wonder why I bothered. 
why I've been trying for years and some 19 year old comes and blows me out of the water. Got talent, kid. Could have gone somewhere. A pause. And I knew that his next words before they came out of phantom lips I couldn't see. It's a real shame you're not going to be writing anything else. I couldn't listen to it. I wanted to run, I wanted to get out. Because I knew what was coming. What I had seen. No! Levi's voice this time. No, you said, you said you wouldn't hurt us. Well, I lied. Now, follow me. If you try anything, I'll give Itsy Bitsy a frontal lobotomy. Instead of listening to their phantom voices panicking, begging, crying out for help, I focused on the real them huddled together and what was going on around me. The first gunshot sent the refrigerator flying across the room, a bottle of soda on the countertop exploding. The second and third gunshots completely animated the kitchen, like it was alive. I had to duck when cupboards started opening and shutting, packs of chips and Tim Tams hitting the wall. They were doing it, I realized, my foggy thoughts coming to some kind of awareness. Levi wrapped his arms around Bitsy and Connor shoved his head on her shoulder. When it was over, when the phantom steps ran back up the basement stairs and made a run for it, the door slamming behind them. The three of them relaxed, and the whirlwind around me came to a grinding halt. Levi, Bitsy, and Connor pulled away from each other with a breath. You see? Levi slowly lifted his head and shot me a sickly smile. Poltergeist. I couldn't breathe before the words were leaving my mouth. I didn't mean for them to sound so final, so blunt, so wrong, and yet they did. You're... you're dead, I managed to whisper. God, you're dead. His eyes darkened. Another bottle of soda burst behind him, and he didn't even blink. We're not dead, I told you. We have a poltergeist. No, I saw you, and I, I heard you. I tried to run, though I only got about halfway before I felt my feet leave the ground. It suddenly felt like I had lost control of my body. Before I could speak, before I could breathe, I was slamming back into the door. Pain rumbled in the back of my head, a neutron star collision exploding in the backs of my eyelids. Levi strode over to me. What did I say? I said we're not dead, so freaking drop it. I didn't reply. How could I? So relax, he said. Are you going to chill out, Lou? I should, I should go. I said pawing for the handle on the door and pulling it open. My mom lives not far from here. Connor folded his arms. He casually inclined his head and the door slammed shut. Yeah, we're not buying that. Mitzi pouted. I thought you wanted to live here. She is living here, Levi said. Lou is our new housemate. She's going to live here with us and we're going to be happy, okay? We're going to be a family. His lips pricked into a smile. Right, Lou? No, I said. No, I can't be here. I need to, I need to get someone. I need to get you help. I'm not sure how I got from point A to point B. I remember running. I remember Bitsy's expression, the hurt, flashing in her eyes, but I kept running. I made it to the top of the stairs before a screeching wail hit my ears and I almost lost my footing. Wait! It was Bitsy. She was screaming, a banshee wail rattling my skull. I felt it fill me, reaching into my brain and stabbing repeatedly. 
When I reached the bottom of the stairs, something warm and wet dripped from my nose, but I was in flight mode. I had to get out. Dead, I thought hysterically, staggering to the main door. The whole time I had known them, I had talked to them, laughed with them, even considering to make my move-in permanent. They were the first people I had felt who felt like natural friends, like they wanted to make an effort to know me, to take that step that nobody else had bothered to since high school. And they were dead. Levi, he was blocking the door. By the way that he was angling his body, I knew that it was more than that. The power that he had, all three of them had, had already trapped me inside the house's walls. Lou. Levi sounded out of breath. Just hold on, hear us out. I couldn't. Not when their bodies were in the basement. Not when I had heard their deaths. He laughed, and it was that real laugh. The one that I had found myself liking. We have a poltergeist, yeah, he sucks, yeah, but it's just for a few minutes every night, and we mostly ignore it. His eyes were bright and manic as he searched my expression for understanding. Something happened here. The house is haunted, and I swear to you, you're safe. They don't hurt us, they just, they just make noise. The more he laughed, the crazier the lights were getting around me. On, off, on, off. Levi's expression broke my heart. He was desperate. A subconscious part of my mind, deep, deep down, begging me to believe the lie that he was telling himself to suppress what really happened to him. Okay, I whispered. I believe you. The boy cocked his head like a child. Say it. His voice broke around the words. Say we have a poltergeist. He held out his hand, palm out, and a stranglehold was suddenly around my neck, twisting and twisting, phantom fingers squeezing my windpipe. I felt him, the energy snaking around him, choking the breath from my lungs. My feet lifted slowly off the ground once again, and I found myself flying. I'd always wanted to fly, but doing just that, hovering in the air, my body Levi's to play with, I took it back. You have a poltergeist. And his hands curled into a fist and I felt all the oxygen leave my lungs. I'll stay. I choked, my vision blurring. Levi dropped his hands and I followed suit, hitting the floor with a thud. His lips formed a smile that I wanted to say was warm, was friendly, like earlier. But I didn't see warmth. I didn't see friendliness. I saw a monster who was in denial of being one. Good. The light stopped flickering. Welcome home, Lou. The Wildfire Experiment Written by Only Post Horror Michael if you're reading this letter, it means that either the mail is late or it is August 8th and you have not gotten any phone calls from me. I know we're on good terms right now, but you're the only person I trust to not just take the money I enclosed and not do anything. If it is August 8th and I haven't called, that means that an experiment of mine has gone wrong and I need you to come and help me out. Please take the money as an advance payment. I can give you more when you show up. 1. Go to the Last Chance Inn in John Day, Oregon. 2. 
room 213 will be booked in my name through the 15th. Tell the owner your name and they should let you in. If they don't, you'll have to break in. 3. Make sure that the TV and bed are exactly where they are in the drawer of the room I stuck in the envelope. Do not move anything around or place your luggage in the room. 4. Make sure that your left hand is palm up in the correct spot in the bed. It's marked in the drawing, and that nothing else is on the bed. 5. With your right hand, grab into something sturdy that you can get a good grip on, and the radiator pipe might work. 6. Remain alert. 7. Now for the weird part. If you did this right, at around 21.59, you should feel someone grab your left wrist very hard and try to pull you. At this point, follow the steps below as fast as possible. 8. Close your eyes and hold on tight. Do not try to see what is grabbing you or allow yourself to be pulled. 9. Grab the wrist of the hand pulling you as hard as you can. Do not let go no matter what you hear. 10. Pull that wrist as far as possible. Do not stop pulling or let go of your anchor. 11. That's it. If it worked, you'll know it. This probably sounds like a lunatic wrote it and it might not be wrong to think that. I'm sorry about what happened last year. I don't expect you to forgive me. Ed. That was the letter that I found waiting in my office yesterday. In a wrinkled, taped up envelope alongside $300 cash and a crude sketch of a floor plan. Ed was the sort of person who would enthusiastically jump into a wood chipper to test his new homemade anti-wood chipper suit. And more unfortunately, was also the sort who couldn't fathom why others wouldn't want to be the control group. I doubted that those last lines of the letter had any real meaning. More likely, Ed had read them in a book on how humans express regret and thought that they might persuade me to come. I threw the letter in the recycle bin and resumed typing. Jack's smiling face popped over the gray wall of my cubicle. Seeing him under the bright fluorescent lights of the office never failed to make me wish for a power outage. Hey, Willis wanted someone to volunteer to come in this weekend. I told him that you weren't busy, since, you know, you never are. Under the desk, I discreetly pulled the letter out of the recycling bin. Actually, Jack, I'm afraid I won't be able to make it. I'm visiting an old friend this weekend. John Day, as I soon discovered, was an exceedingly annoying location to get to. It was squeezed into a river valley approximately 80 miles west of the highway and eastern Oregon, which placed it about 300 miles away from anywhere worth visiting. Besides pine trees, farms, and smoky bear signs warning me that the entire state was a tinderbox, the only entertainment I could find was one of these seemingly omnipresent religious radio stations. A grandfatherly voice conning idiots out of their money. And remember, we are sinners at heart, and the path to redemption leads through holy fire. But all of you, my listeners, all of you can be saved. All may walk the path of the righteous. All it takes is to open your hearts to the Lord, to face the fire without fear, to accept judgment and beg forgiveness. And, of course, to donate generously to the station. Seriously, on a more positive note, the long drive did give me plenty of time to think about the contents of the letter. Even for something added written, 
the letter was by all accounts bizarre. Usually, Ed's request had involved me unwittingly purchasing and transporting chemicals that I strongly suspected he was no longer allowed to have. This, on the other hand, sounded more like an occult ritual than a science experiment. By the time I reached the town's welcome sign, I placed 90% odds on him just wanting me out here for some other reason, and 10% odds of him jumping out of the closet like a maniac at 10pm. My resigned annoyance turned to worry, and then when the motel owner confirmed Ed's booking and showed me at room 213, he swore the room had not been open since Ed's arrival three days prior, but it appeared that it had never been used at all. No scientific experiment, no explosives, not so much as a single article of clothing, and no ad to be found anywhere, even in the traditional monster hangouts inside the closet and under the bed. I was now faced with the very real possibility of actually following through with this, whatever it was. Just think of the money, I muttered to myself, flopping onto the bed. For all of his faults, Ed never failed to pay well. Something crinkled under the pillow. I lifted it up and took a look. A half-torn sheet of notebook paper, half-fallen behind the bed. The top had perforations where it had been torn off of a binder. One side was blank, but the other had the word convergences at the top and a chart below. Two columns, three rows before the page ended in a tear. I read them to myself under my breath. 120-0730-222-0030-210-1645 I could make out the top of 213 in the first column below that, but the tear had erased the bottom of the number and presumably its corresponding four digits. A green circle had been drawn around that row. I stuffed the note in my pocket. Best not to think too hard about what Ed wrote down. Hours later, with several drinks inside me and my luggage stored safely in my car, I found myself sitting on the floor of room 213, watching Pirates of the Caribbean on some godforsaken rural TV station. To fit my hand into the positions that Ed had drawn on the diagram, I had sandwiched myself awkwardly between the bed and the wall. My left hand was laying on the bed, twisted palm up, and the right was next to the radiator. At least the awkward pose would keep me from falling asleep. The bedside clock read 9.58pm, and Jack Sparrow was just stepping off of his dinghy when I noticed. A faint blue glow in the peripheral vision and felt something brush my wrist. I had no sooner closed my eyes than something grabbed me so hard, I felt like my forearm was about to shatter. The floor fell away beneath me and I began to sink through what felt like tar, my left arm being dragged downward and my body following behind. Even through my closed eyelids, I could see blue flashes. I began to hear things, whispers that wrapped around my head from one ear to another, far slower than sound should. Sounds of laughter. I was not afraid. So easy now to let myself be dragged down. I could scarcely remember what I had been doing. Something about pirates. I felt my right hand slide across something. The radiator pipe. My senses flooded back to me. I put the pipe in a white-knuckled grip with my right hand, with the vice grip still on my wrist. Moving my left hand was agony. 
but I managed to find and grab what felt like an arm. I pulled with all my might and felt a weight moving towards me slowly, picking up speed as I pulled harder. The blue flashes turned to red and the whispers stopped sounding joyful. The waves turned to roaring flames and the laughter grew cruel, pounding in the back of my head like hammer blows. I felt the skin on my wrist begin to tear as the grip on it grew impossibly tighter. I tried to scream, but the pounding was so loud that I didn't know if I did. Something shifted. Some cord holding the weight back snapped and whatever I was pulling flew past me as I nearly smacked myself in the face with my newly freed left arm. The flashes stopped and I heard one last whisper as I opened my eyes. Ed's voice. Sorry. I had no idea what I had expected to see when I woke up, but I was still disappointed. The room was still empty and quiet. I was lying on the bed, except for me slowly getting up and nothing moved. The TV was off and the clock face was dark. I sighed with Jack's face 800 miles away. A power outage was significantly less useful to me. Without the ceiling light, the only illumination was an eerie orange glow filtering through the curtains and illuminating the dust in the air. More dust than I remembered. Much more. How long had I been wherever I was? First thing was first, though. I went to the bathroom and found, much to my relief, that the tap still worked. After a drink from the faucet and a truly legendary piss, I stepped out of the door. The light of a setting sun blinded me as I stared across the parking lot, deserted save for my car. Even I had to admit that the pine forests and the rolling hills were rather pretty. Less pretty was the fact that I didn't see a single other person, a car, or a lit window in the entire town. It had been evacuated. The air smelled vaguely of smoke, but I could see no impending wildfire. I walked in my car and headed for the road back to the interstate. I still couldn't believe that no one had bothered to check the motel notice on my car. And then again, I still wasn't sure what had happened for most of the day at least, if the sun was setting again. Evacuating to town, even in a tiny place like this one, it had to take longer than that. I added kill Ed to my to-do list, right after, leave without encountering the reason the town is empty. And drugging me and leaving me to maybe literally die in a fire was a new low even for him. It had to have been drugs, right? No other explanation. The sun had finished setting as I drove back east through the forest. My headlights are now the only illumination on the road. There is still no sign of a fire, not even a glow above the trees. I should have felt relieved, safe even. I had plenty of gas to get back to the highway, but there was still something off. I hadn't seen anyone or anything on the road. No fire trucks, no evacuation route signs, and not even a speed limit sign. The road had been totally empty. Now, I would never describe myself as much of a social person, but I would have killed to see some sign of life right now. I turned the radio on, but even the AM channels were playing nothing but static. I was so lost in my own worries that I almost peed my pants when the radio came to life again. What that same Jesus crap is before. The dash clock read 10.14pm. Shouldn't this old guy be in bed by now? And as we wrap things up for tonight, 
We've got time for one more call. Listeners, please open your hearts for her. An ear-splitting blast of static came from the radio, accompanied by a throb in my head. The same feeling from the motel room. My fingers scrambled as I spun the volume knob down, but the broadcast did not go quiet. As I frantically switched my gaze back and forth between the road and the radio, flashes of orange appeared in the trees, keeping pace with my car and disappearing when I tried to get a better look. The grandfatherly voice of the preacher came back, chuckling like he had just heard an old joke. As our caller has gently reminded us, we collect more than just donations at the station. Now I know I like to go on and on about redemption about how all sins can be paid in fire. But it is all too often that we forget there is a line. A line across which no soul may travel and still hope to see paradise. The voice became deathly quiet. I listened with growing unease. A line across which the Lord of Ash claims all. My faithful, our caller has informed us that someone has paid the ultimate price tonight to try and escape our Lord's justice. And that that payment does not yet realize that he is in our Lord's realm. The voice became a bit more cheerful, chuckling again. My faithful, our payment is heading east through the forest and I think we should give him a warm welcome. The radio went dead again. I checked my mirrors and nothing. I accelerated anyway. I didn't like the sound of being a payment, especially for this creepy old fart. That's how it worked in horror movies, right? The country preacher running some kind of dungeon out of the church basement. Yeah, no thanks. I tore around a bend and drifting into the other lane and feeling the tires nearly lose their grip on the roadway. I forced myself to take a deep breath and let off the gas as I finally hit a straight section of pavement. In the distance, just at the edge of my headlights reach, someone was standing in the center of the road. As I approached, slowly and reflexively, I realized that the figure was charcoal black even in my lights. My head started to throb again. I couldn't have been more than a hundred feet away, almost stopped, when the figure began sprinting towards me. I could see its face by the time I was able to stop, and then it flung itself onto the hood. It was human, or at least it had been. It had horrifically burned skin, little more than black flakes held together by some unnatural forest, with boiling pus oozing and hissing through the gaps. Empty caverns were eyes it should have been, a glowing orange maw behind perfect white teeth. The entire car jolted as I slammed it into reverse, two black hands leaving bubbling paint and scorch marks on the hood as I accelerated out of the creature's grasp. It ran after me, far faster than any person should have been able to run, barely slower than the car. And this is the part where an action hero would pull a J-turn and say something cool. I didn't know how to do either of those things, so I reversed down the road for a half mile until the creature was out of sight. I pulled over and took stock of my options, forward or back, town or forest, possible death by monster or possible death by fire. Not a great set of options. With a boom, the roof of the car caved in. Two footprints pressed into it. The temperature skyrocketed as I floored the gas pedal, struggling to see with the roof now pressing into my shoulder. 
the acceleration failed to remove the monster from the roof. Instead, there was a horrible screech as a black claw tore through the metal and grazed my shoulder. My shirt smoldered. I felt my skin cook under it. Another hand reached in and began to tear the hole wider. The radio came to life again as I struggled to stay on the road. You have sinned. You will burn and the Lord of Ash will. I put my fist through the front of the radio, surprised at my own strength and anger. Screw the Lord of Ash, whoever he was. Up ahead, a branch hung low over the road's shoulder. As a boiling black hand grabbed from my face, I passed under it. With a howl, the creature left the top of my car, the tree igniting behind me. I saw more orange flashes, the creature's mouths through the trees. They were making no effort to hide, trying to keep pace with the car. Speed was my only defense left. As I left the trees and re-entered the fields around the town, I saw the orange glow of the spreading fire crest the trees in my mirrors. Not going back that way. I tore back into town with my gas gauge hovering on empty. The creatures were all around now, watching from the windows of the empty shops and sprinting across the rooftops. And they had the numbers to jump on the ruined roof and drag me out, but they didn't. The wildfire would finish the job. The flames were the height of mountains now, surrounding the town completely and blotting out these stars with smoke. I had one plan left, and it was a long shot. As I tore back into the motel parking lot and jumped out of the car, I noted the time on the dash clock. 12.36am. Double-checking Ed's note from my pocket, I ran upstairs and threw open the door of room 222. I almost cried with relief. There was a blue glow on the bed. I dove for it and felt a hand. I grabbed that hand harder than anything I had ever grabbed in my life, digging in with my nails as it tried to pull away. The temperature of the room skyrocketed as one of the burned men appeared in the doorway behind me, its hideous face twisted into a snarl. As my feet singed under a blackened hand, I closed my eyes and pulled even harder. The hand let go of my legs as I rose through a sea of red and then blue, and then onto the bed of room 222. Her name was Sarah. Her driver's license said that she was 27, and her still-running laptop said that she had a husband and was staying in room 222 of the last chance in while on the way to visit her parents. I thought about calling her husband, but I decided against it. Like, what would I even say? Hey, I'm Michael. Sorry I sent your wife to hell. Maybe you can get a new one. No, the police would probably do a more tactful job. Who knows? Maybe she'll figure it out too and pull on some other guests so she can escape. Or maybe not. The front desk lady was a bit concerned about my burn marks and painful limb, but she also handed me an envelope. I told her that I had been in a grilling accident before I left, and she seemed to buy it. The envelope just read, Mike, open immediately on the outside. I wanted to sit in my car to read it, but my car was gone from the parking lot. Maybe it was still in hell. I opened the envelope, and a set of BMW keys and a thick stack of $100 bills fell out, with a note visible still inside. That was when I noticed the brand new X6 in the parking lot. I sighed and I loaded my luggage. Let it never be said that Ed didn't pay well. 
I drove out of town before I could get tangled in any missing persons cases. Ed had given me plenty of experience in dealing with legal trouble. It's a massive pain in the butt. It's not like they were going to get that lady back anyways. Sitting in my new heated seat at a rest stop, I read the note. Michael, congratulations. If you're reading this, then you are the second living proof that intraplanar travel is possible for a human. I hope the Lord of Ashes theatrics didn't scare you too badly. He's more or less at the absolute minimum level of power a demon needs to get their own round butt. He likes to act like, for the lack of a better term, like he's way bigger than he really is. Do make sure to follow up with him, if he asked, regarding whatever or whoever you pay to get back out. He was extremely displeased with how long you took to get there and let me out. If he didn't heal whatever burns you got from his associates, then I've got some ointment that you can use. If you'd like to continue helping me with this research, my new sponsor is prepared to pay 300k a year in full health benefits. The car is yours. I told Jake, or was it Jack, at the accounting firm that you died in a car crash, and I had to make it look realistic, so I borrowed your old one. Side note, avoid I-84 for a bit. There is a big rag. Hopefully that makes it a little bit easier to ditch that office job. Head south from Dayton, Washington on Touche Road until you see a sign for a George's a towing service yard. Turn left there and follow the dirt track for about 20 minutes and I'll find you. Ed. On one hand, I wasn't a big fan of the fact that Ed had been presumptuous enough to fake my death. On the other hand, I wasn't actually dead. And that was six times my current salary. And also heated seats. I turned the radio back to the religious station and I pulled back out onto the road. My Word for the Shadow Government Written by With Bite I was fresh out of college, ambitious, hardworking, and in debt. I applied for hundreds of jobs and attended dozens of interviews, all the while working the night shift at a 24-hour convenience store. But I kept hitting the brick wall of not having the right experience. It was so frustrating. I knew that I could do 90% of what the job specs asked for. The other 10% I was sure that I could work out when I needed to. It was a no every time though, and it didn't matter how many times I read on feedback emails that I was very talented and the interviewers had enjoyed meeting me. Each and every rejection sucked. I didn't need compliments, I needed a job. So I wasn't feeling very positive as I filled in yet another application form for a job that I had seen online. It wasn't even a proper job. It was for an internship with a research company unpaid for about three months. For the experience, I told myself as I fought to finish the form. I finally did. Just before I had to leave for work, I pressed, send, and then I threw out my coat and hurried out the door. The shelves would not stack themselves. The next morning, I was dragging myself into bed when I noticed that I had a reply to my latest application showing on my phone. Thinking, at least the rejections are getting quicker. I almost didn't read it. But my finger twitched and I opened it. And to my amazement, 
I was told that I had been accepted onto the internship program. All I needed to do was read and accept the terms and conditions. But I mean, who does that right? I scrolled down and accepted, and then rolled over and went to sleep. The alarm on my mobile woke me up at one in the afternoon. I couldn't remember setting an alarm, but obviously I must have. And then I thought, the internship. And I rushed to look at the message again. There it was. Please arrive promptly at 3pm for your induction. And this was followed by an address. It was way out of town, but thanks to the alarm, I had time. I am so on it. I told myself and I hurried for the shower. As it was, I was almost late. There was a line to get through the security checks at the entrance to the building. The place didn't look anything special. It could have been a stock image brought up from a search for big faceless office building. When my turn came, I was asked to empty my pockets and walk through a body scanner. This was a fancy looking piece of kit and it gave me a 360 degree going over. I felt kind of violated to be honest and as I stepped out, I was about to protest that I had consented to being searched in this way when I had remembered the terms and conditions. That had been a long, long list and I guessed in there somewhere there had been a line about intimate electronic searches. Better than a latex glove up the butt, I decided and accepted a lanyard with my face looking out from it. It wasn't a great photograph. I was wearing my sweatshirt rather than the white shirt and tie that I had on. Hang on, I thought, and I turned to ask one of the people at the security desk where they had got this picture from. When I heard someone say my name, the Allen Chambers. The woman who had spoken was maybe 30 and had a dark blue business suit on. Her blonde hair was on ponytail and she wore what I believed are called sensible shoes. I wasn't checking her out in a seedy way. I was just, you know, looking. I blushed away. She seemed oblivious to my discomfort and held out her hand. I'm Jane Mitchell, though everyone calls me Jane One. Is that because there are two Jane Mitchells that work here? I asked as we shook hands. She smiled. Oh, there used to be. Now, let's get to work. Looking back, the short space of time between application, acceptance, and me actually sitting at a workstation and being assigned tasks should have made me realize that something was off. And the fact that they had a picture of me and I didn't know how they got it, it should have bothered me more. But I was really just too plain excited. After months and months of frustration, I was finally getting somewhere. The only thing I had was that I hadn't resigned from my job at the store. Hey, don't sweat the small stuff. I told myself and I focused on the task at hand. My desktop was showing 12 different shared screens, each one of a domestic setting and by clicking into one I could enlarge it. The one that I chose first looked to be the view of a home office. There was an old fashioned calendar on the wall, a cactus in a pot and a bookshelf. I was clearly seeing this room via a camera on a computer. The next setting that I enlarged was a kitchen. It was a spacious room with pots lined up on a wall hanger in the background. My task was to observe the activity taking place and note down timings of anything unusual. I had been told that another experienced member of staff would then review the footage. 
Both the first two rooms were empty, so I decided to check on the third. And there was a young man, a bit older than me. He looked to be working on a device while lying on the sofa. To me, the young man's behavior seemed perfectly normal. So, should I move on to someone else and come back to him later, in the hope that he would be doing something weird? I rubbed my face, a habit that I have when the cogs are moving inside my head. This was tricky and fascinating. Oh, how's it going, Alan? I turned to see Jane Wan was standing behind me. For the life of me, I thought she had told me her actual surname, but Jane Wan had stuck in my mind. Okay, I said. I suppose. I guess I just need to get used to thinking in a certain way. To be able to decide quickly what constitutes unusual. Jane one frowned and checked the tablet that she was holding. After a moment, she looked up and said, Your records show acute observational skills. I tried to remember the responses that I had given in the application form that she must have been referring to, but I drew a blank. I tried to look, if not wise and at least competent, and said, Well, of course, that's a key skill of mine. This seemed to do the trick as Jane one looked less perturbed and started to move on. There were more people at workstations that ran the length of the room. I guess she was a busy lady with a lot of people to supervise. But a question had just occurred to me. Uh, I said. Miss One, I mean Jane. She paused. Yes, Alan. The people I'm observing, well, uh, presumably, they know they're being watched because they must have given us permission. But won't that change their behavior? Jane one looked at me like I just slipped down a couple of rungs on the evolutionary ladder and said, They don't know that they're being observed, Alan. What would be the point if they did? And then she walked away. I rubbed my face. A whole host of new questions were forming. But they all got shoved to one side when the woman screamed. It was a small sound coming from my computer, and I could not spot who it was at first glance. And then one of the screens I saw a woman running into a room. I clicked to enlarge and could see that she was in a bedroom. A computer camera that was observing through must have been on a bedside table or a chair. Either way, I had a clear view as the man walked into the room. He was breathing heavily as he approached the woman. She backed away from him, but there was no place to go. And then he hit her, and he kept doing it. I took out my phone to dial 911 but realized I had no idea where this was happening. I stood up, looked around the other workstations. Would anyone else know? I doubted it, but I knew who probably would. Jane, I shouted. Get Jane one. I don't know if someone called for her or if she heard me herself, but a minute later she made herself over to me. I felt sick at what I had seen and I struggled to get my words out. A, a woman has been attacked. I saw everything. We need to tell the police. Give them the details. On the screen, the woman was alone again. She lay on the floor, not moving. I didn't know if she was still breathing. Jane did not interrupt me and did not ask any questions. I don't think she even glanced at the screen. When she spoke, it was in a calm voice. Sit down, Alan. 
Your job is to observe and pass your contribution on to the next stage in the system. We have to help, I gasped. The system will help. I believe that because I trust the system. And you, Alan? Yes, I replied. But, she talked over me. Good, now please go back to work. The rest of that first day passed by in a blur. I felt disoriented and confused. I tried to concentrate on what I was seeing on the screens, but I couldn't stop thinking about the woman who had been attacked. Even though shortly after Jane had finished speaking to me, I watched as police or paramedics, I'm not sure as I didn't recognize their uniforms, arrived and began to tend to the woman before taking her away on a stretcher. The system had worked, I suppose. Perhaps a neighbor had heard the screams and to call the authorities. I did not know and by the time I left the building around midnight, after another turn through the body scanner, I decided that I would not be going back. I would email say the internship was not one for me and thank them for the experience. Some kind of BS along those lines. I decided to do this one I had a clearer head. But after I got home, I could not go to sleep for ages. And when the alarm on my phone went off, I woke with a start. I looked at my phone, saw that it was 1 o'clock in the afternoon. What the heck? I hadn't even set that alarm. I rubbed my face and realized that I had new messages. The first was from my bank. It said that I had received a payment. One that ran into tens of thousands of dollars. Enough to pay off my student loans in one fell swoop. What the heck? I said it aloud this time. The second was from Jane Wan. As per the terms and conditions you accepted, now you have formally entered the internship program. We have deposited an amount equal to your debt in your account. Should you not complete the program, we will require immediate repayment with an administration fee of 80% of the original amount added to the outstanding balance. We look forward to seeing you at the office later today. P.S. Nice PJs. I pulled the bedsheet up to my neck and looked at my laptop. It was open and facing me. I just about made it to the toilet before I was violently sick. Resigning there and then was now out of the question. I had been screwed financially before I joined the program. I had another 80% and I would be haunted by debt for decades. I was pretty angry by the time I arrived at the office that day. The security guard who processed me gave me a dirty look throughout. What's your problem? I snapped as I stepped out of the body scanner. Just concerned about your heart rate and temperature. They've been through the roof for the last two hours, he replied. How? I began. But I had no need to ask the question as it dawned on me. Like a lot of people, I had an app on my phone which registered how many steps that I took a day. That and clearly much more. I went to the restroom, turned my phone off and decided to take the battery out as well. Swearing under my breath, I went to have things out with Jane One. I had a growing list with a spine on me at the top. A man that I had never seen before was waiting for me outside of the restroom door. He held his hand out, displaying all the signs of a very good dental plan and said, Hey Alan, I'm Tony. I'm your supervisor for the day. 
Jane, I began. I want to speak to... Oh, Jane is first floor. Today, you'll be working with me in the basement. If you'd like to come with me. He swept his hand in the direction of the left. I counted to ten. Promised myself that before I left the office, I would find a way out of this mess. And then I followed him to the left. Tony wore a dark blue suit, a subtly striped tie, and black shoes. His hair was parted immaculately, and he smelled of something woody. I could feel the sweat gathering in my armpits and hoped he was wearing enough expensive deodorant for the two of us. The doors clicked open and Tony led me out into a gray corridor. For my exit plan, I needed options. I decided to try sounding him out. Do people ever drop out? I asked him as casually as I could. He looked thoughtful and after a moment's pause he replied, Subtermination does occasionally occur. Or sometimes we'll decide it's simply not working out and call time on an internship. It's such a shame when this happens, to see a young person become one of life's leftovers. Why do you ask, Alan? Are you thinking of leaving us? No, I answered. Still trying to process what he had said. Tony nodded. Glad to hear that. We had reached a double set of steel doors and Tony was opening them by placing his hand on a scanner fixed to the wall. They whooshed close to silently and we stepped through into a massive open space. Lines of desks with laptops on them ran the length of the room. There were seats by the desk. I noticed that each seat had restraints on the arms and that there were more restraints by the legs of the desk. Something cold touched the back of my neck. I reached around, realizing that it was sweat trickling down my skin. What was this place? I wondered. Tony, for his part, being like a proud parent on a word's day, he clamped his hands together and said, Today, Alan, I'm going to introduce you to our latest project, I can tell you there is significant excitement about it on all levels of the organization. It could, we believe, significantly improve the way we run the country. I held up my hand. Wait, I said. The government runs the country, the people that we elect. He looked at me with what seemed like pity in his eyes and then shook his head. Alan, he said. The men and women you see braying into the camera every day. Are you seriously telling me that they are fit to run the country? I could not answer. This was one shock too many. He must have taken my silence for acquiescence because he went on. This building is one outlying office of the most effective administration there has ever been. We have been covertly in charge of this country for more than half a century, and that is why this is the greatest nation in the world. He slapped his fist into the palm of his other hand straightened his tie and said, Now, if you will move over to the wall, then stand behind the safety line. I looked to my left. A red line had been painted on the floor. I had a very bad feeling about this, but I did as I was told. My legs felt very shaky as I moved behind the red line. Tony joined me, still beaming. A buzzer sounded, and at the far side of the room, a large shutter door had opened. The smell hit me instantly. It was something rancid. I wanted to ask Tony what it was, but I could not speak anymore, because the first of them had appeared through the doorway. 
Their clothes were filthy and torn. Each had a lanyard. These were not held on by a cord but fixed with a bolt directly into their chest. Their skin, where it was exposed, was shriveled and in places, fallen away completely to reveal the flesh beneath. None spoke, though their mouths moved constantly. Tony must have seen my attention was fixed on this because he leaned over and said in a quiet voice, Their tongues are clipped during induction. I looked at him blankly. There were men wearing overalls and carrying long tasers flanking the things that had entered the room. If one had started to veer off to the side, it was shot back into place. Soon the smell of burning flesh was added to the foul, sickly sweet odor that now filled the room. I was aware that my heart was beating at a crazy speed, that I was now soaked in sweat, but all I could do was stand and stare as they continued to shuffle forward. I was too scared to move, too scared to even speak. Prodded and shouted out by the men in overalls, the things each sat at a desk. As they did so, the restraints clamped close around their wrists and ankles. Eventually, all of them were seated before one of the laptops, which were now powering up. From where I stood, I could see images start to flicker on the laptops, one after another in rapid succession. Slowly at first, but then picking up speed, the things started to press the keyboards in front of them, one finger at a time. Soon, they were in sync with the changing images. My god, I realized. They were responding to what they were being shown. The, the, they, I tried to say. The, the, they are. Absolutely amazing, Tony said. You see, Alton, the zombie brain is uncluttered. It doesn't worry about what the other zombies think. It isn't distracted by romantic or sexual feelings. It doesn't have personal ambition or fear. These zombies are ideal. For what? I managed to ask. To help us create the algorithms that will guide every aspect of the lives of people all across this country for years to come. I couldn't respond. I stood and stared as waves of fear passed through me. I can't tell you how long the zombies were kept at their task, but when a new buzzer sounded and the restraints clicked open... I felt a glimmer of hope that the worst was over. I had no idea that this waking nightmare was only just beginning. The zombies got slowly to their feet and were herded towards one corner of the room where there were no dust. Once again, a buzzer sounded and a hatch had opened in the ceiling. A glistening slab fell through and then another. It was meat, I realized. Blood dripped from fat chunks of matter now rushing towards the ground. The zombies did not hesitate. Afterwards, Tony took me back to the lift and up to the ground floor. He got me a can of soda from a vending machine and told me that it would help us settle my stomach. And then he said that he would see me tomorrow. I did not go home. I walked the streets for a long time and I'm still walking. It's close to dawn and I've decided that I'm not going back to the office. I'm going off grid. To somewhere remote. I have to do this. I have to get away. Tony said that the interns that don't make it become life's leftovers. Seeing the zombies feeding, I understood what he meant. It was not the way that they tore at the meat with their teeth or the drool speckled with bone. 
and Gressel hanging from their chins. It was when the meat was released from the hatch in the ceiling, and it landed in a pile on the floor. It was glimpsing the movement among the other slabs of meat. The hand raised, the terrified face, before these zombies began their feast. I hope you all enjoyed today's stories. Thank you again so much for tuning in for another episode. I really can't say how much it really means to me, but thank you so much for your constant support. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.